All right, y'all, it's spring, and you know what that means. It's time to start planning our summer festival traveling. Yep, it's time to get into my Airbnb bag cross-country, a.k.a. uh, time to visit my homes all across the country. And you know what I never think about? Why not list my own spot on Airbnb and host some folks at my house? I mean, my house is cute. Yes, let's make money while we're spending money. Just trying to help you out, man, because your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Whether this is her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct is everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Course Love Supreme is a production of iHeartRadio. This classic episode was produced by the team at Pandora. What's up? This is Unpaid Bill from Quest Love Supreme. For the next QLS Classic, we get back to Steve Miller's January 10th, 2018 appearance. Rock and Roll Hall of Famer talks about the early lessons he learned from Les Ball and T-Bone Walker, sitting in on an impromptu recording session with the Beatles, and performing with greats like Chuck Berry, Sly Stone, and more. Fly Like an Eagle, back to episode 66. Suprema, Suprema roll call. Suprema, Suprema roll call. Suprema, Suprema roll call. Suprema, Suprema roll call. What's love in the place? Yeah, I want to talk about yeah what what space. So yeah, I'm inserting a question inside the theme song. Steve Miller. I just have to ask you. <laughs> wow, that was, that was wait, quick. What was on your mind when you were making Blue Odyssey and Space and just in, in less than 30 seconds, please? <laughs> uh, I had uh, just got a really, really cheap synthesizer, my first one, and I immediately hooked it up to my Echoplex and I had an eight track tape recorder and I just was building electronic soundscapes, like broadening the horizon so I right. could put something in it. Beautiful. Thank you. Roll, <laughs> roll call. Suprema. Suprema. Roll call. Suprema. Suprema. Roll call. My name is Fonte. Yeah. Your favorite rapper. Yeah. I work my magic. Yeah. Abracadabra. Roll call. Suprema. Suprema. Roll call. Suprema. Suprema roll call. My name is Sugar. Yeah. Sugar, sugar, baby. Yeah. Sugar, baby. Yeah. Sugar, sugar, baby. Suprema. Suprema. Suprema roll call. Suprema. Suprema roll call. Boss Bill's in the place. Yeah. We're going to have some fun. Yeah. And learn how the biz. Yeah. Take some money and runs. Roll call. Suprema. 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 Suprema.
Suprema Roll Call. It's my ear. Yeah. Steve Miller, I'm stoked. Yeah. I don't know. I just want to say smoker and joker. Yeah. That's, that's how I feel. What? Roll Call. Because he said in the song. Suprema. Suprema Roll Call. Suprema. Suprema Roll Call. Some people call me Maurice. Yeah. Some people call me the Space Cowboy. Yeah. Some people call me Stevie. Yeah. But I'm going to tell you I'm Cowboy. Yeah. Suprema. Suprema. Suprema Roll Call. Suprema. Suprema Roll Call. Suprema. Suprema roll call. Suprema, su, su, Suprema roll call. Wow. Well, good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Oh, good good morning. morning. I feel much better. <laughs> cool. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, we are honored here today to have the legendary, the artist, artist. I'm very glad that you're on the show because I've always wanted to talk someone that to whom it took more than seven albums <laughs> to finally break on through to the other side. <laughs> yeah. So I'm not alone in this world. No. Uh, no, you're not. I, I, yeah, I would, I would like to think if I can insert myself inside of my own radio show that no, if, yeah, heard. the first time, yeah, uh, that if we were out in the 60s, if the roots were out in the 60s, we would probably travel the same path that Steve Miller took, a, a, a guy who had unrelentless uncompromising artistic uh, goals in life that he set and he didn't kowtow or, or bow down to the man mm. and you know a true, a true story of artist development and, and innovation and we thank you for coming ladies and gentlemen please welcome Steve Miller yes sir uh, love Supreme. well that's that's pretty humbling um, <laughs> you know we would have uh, had had we been rolling at the same time, we probably would have been touring together because uh, we would have been buds, man. Trying to do uh, uh, artistic, make pop music uh, intellectual, and do artistic things and be political and and make a change in 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 um, our society. That was those were all things that I see the roots as being very interested in. And when I listen to your records, I kind of go. Oh yeah, I know who they're. Yeah, uh, they're in this studio now. Yeah, you know, you. and and uh, it's uh, uh, it's really really sweet of you to say all those nice things. You know, because nobody really says that stuff, and you feel like that when you're working on it. And seven albums was a long time, you know. But uh, uh, well, you did it. Well, you you're know, I was never not going to, you know. So that's the way that goes. Termination. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, being as though, I mean, you definitely came from an era in which um, songs had to speak for themselves, um, where there's actual grassroots uh, kind of work put, in, put into uh, spreading the word and word of mouth and those sort of things. It wasn't like, you know, today where your celebrity determines how far you're going to go. And, you know, even sadly, as of 2017, I mean, talent really isn't even a fact. As a matter of fact, it could be a hindrance, say, you know, to, well, say, the to say the least. So come on now, buck up, cheer up. <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot of talent out here, you I, know, but uh, I understand what, what, you're, what you're getting. I at know here. a lot of your music, but I just don't know a lot of your, your journey and your life that, that got you to the point. So M my journey's crazy. I, I can give it to you in a, a I'm paragraph. Here for it. I'm, so, I'm here for it. 
I, I was uh, born in Milwaukee to a family. Uh, my mother's side of the family were all musicians. Mm -hmm. And my father's side of the family, they were kind of inventors and doctors. Okay. So my dad was a pathologist. He had a tape recorder. And when I was four years old, I met Les Paul. And this was 1949. Are you ready for that? Really? Yeah, it was just a few years after World War II, and Les Paul showed up with an electric guitar. And How I did your family know Les Paul? Well, he, he came to Milwaukee to put his act together with Mary Ford before he went to New York to do a TV show. It was one of the first TV shows. It was a real weird little TV show. It was like 15 minutes long. It had kind of come on at 3.30 in the afternoon from his house. Huh. Oh, wow. And they were, putting, they were rehearsing at a supper club just down the block from where we lived. And my dad went down and said, I have a tape recorder, which was this brand new technology that came over from Germany after World War II. It was one of the first tape recorders. So... Uh, he said, can I record your shows? And Les said, yeah, of course. So I went down with my father, with Pops, and we watched Les Paul play every night. And I was like four years old, sitting on the bench next to him watching this guitar player. And then they would come over to the house to listen to the tapes and party. So there were lots of parties, lots of drinking, lots of smoking, lots of musicians, lots of people hanging out. And that's the beginning. And I knew that you could speed tape up, you could slow it down. You know, if you sped the tape up and recorded and then slowed it down, you know, the guitar would sound like a bass. Or if you recorded it at three and a half and, you know, played a lead part and then put it back up to seven, it'd be twice as fast. And I understood that Mary Ford was singing multiple tracks. And this is like 1949. Overdubbing wasn't even a thing yet. Yeah, they had just invented it, seeing Patty Page and Les with the multi-tracking. And, and so I just, there I was. I was like five years old, kind of going, yeah, multi-tracking. And then <laughs> a pack of postcards came to our house after they went to New York and they had their TV show. And it was 100 postcards, and they were all stamped. And they were all addressed to the same radio station in Milwaukee, but they were all written in kind of phony, different handwriting. Mm -hmm. And that was to promote their next single. So it's 1950, and I'm walking around going, I, man, I love show business. And, you know, I, I want to be a musician. And Mead Lugs Lewis was my guy he honky-tonk train was the greatest shuffle in the world and he's just listened to that over and over and over as a baby and and uh, that's what I wanted to do and uh, you know my godfather Les Paul was doing it so I was watching him from a distance so I had all that and then we moved to Texas and Texas was like um really amazing because it was segregated and I had never been in a segregated community before and I was a Yankee. Mm -hmm. I didn't know what anybody was talking about. I was in the second grade and I was going, what? You know, what, what are you talking about? You know, and I was going to Stonewall Jackson Elementary School. And, oh, God. They, you know, <laughs> it was like that. And uh, my dad was running this lab, uh, this pathology lab, and a friend of his was taking care of this guy named T-Bone Walker. Oh, man. 
Wait. And so my dad goes, uh, he introduces himself to T-Bone and they become friends and T-Bone comes over to the house. So my parents rented a piano. I'd never seen a piano before and I got sick and stayed home from school and played with the piano all day. And this is true. At five o'clock in the afternoon, T-Bone Walker drove into our, we lived in this suburb where there were like 5,000 houses that looked the same and everybody (laughs) had this little yard and that was the deal. And T-Bone pulled into the driveway in a flesh-colored Cadillac convertible with leopard skin seats (laughs) (laughs) and a suit and tie on and a great big old Gibson guitar case. And he came in and he opened up his case and I was just all over him. You know, he's just like, are you T-Bone Walker? How do you do this? How do you do that? And um, they, uh, he, he would come over and play parties and, my dad recorded all of this, so I have the recordings of like the first night I met T Bone Walker. Still have wow. those? Yeah, man. No! Wow. <laughs> wow! And and they're really great recordings. And T Bone is uh, whoever it was on piano is just unbelievably cool. And uh, T Bone played from about six o'clock at night till about five o'clock in the morning. And uh, so I have these uh, these tapes from nineteen fifty one and fifty two. And and so he taught me how to play the guitar behind my head and do the splits. I was nine <laughs> when when, oh, when I met him. And um, so I was the main thing was I was sitting there watching T-Bone play lead guitar this far away from him. And um, <laughs> there's, I, I was listening to one of these tapes just the other night. We listened to them all the time. And uh, uh, T-Bone turns to me, he says, what you want to sing, Steve? And I said, nothing. It was just like watching. But uh, so from there, I'm in Texas, and there's like country music. There's a big D jamboree. There's like black radio stations. There's white radio stations. Jimmy Reed is like pop music. Uh, it's um, just full of of great music. And um, I uh, ran into a kid who had been taking drum lessons since he was five years old, mm-hmm. and uh, he was like. 12 and he was like a professional drummer he was just absolutely together and his dad was really cool he had a music room and we used to go over and listen to screaming jay hawkins records and stuff and we started uh, playing together and we started a band and it was 1956 and uh, mimeographed a letter sent it out to all the high schools and colleges and fraternities and sororities and churches and boys and girls clubs and synagogues, any place that had live music, saying we had a rock and roll band. And there weren't any rock and roll bands. It was 1956. Can I ask one thing? Yeah. What city in Texas was this? Dallas. Okay, okay. And uh, Freddie King was on television in the afternoon. On Saturday afternoon, there was an R&B show on TV and... um, Lightning Hopkins was coming through town. There was a lot of jazz. All of Ray Charles's band lived in Fort Worth. Fathead Newman, those guys were in and out of town. And and so there was this really cool music scene going on. And um, I uh, was listening to Jimmy Reed and Bill Doggett. Those were 
when I was 11 and 12. That was the stuff I really liked, and that's what our band played. And um, so we sent these letters out, and I, I had the band booked for like a whole school year, like in three weeks. And um, uh, nobody knew how old we were because we were 12. <laughs> and but it was a really good band. Boskegs was in the joined the band the next year, and and you know, we had um, uh, a really good repertoire. We did a lot of blues and a lot of of uh, uh, R and B tunes, and and that band stayed together all through high school, and then followed me into college. And so I grew up in the in the middle of this sort of jazz scene my parents loved jazz and jazz musicians were always coming over and how, uh, how accessible were because i mean the story that you're telling is just not the average story where like t-bone walker just comes <laughs> he pulls up in my room. driveway in the cadillac right. so <laughs> first of, i mean yeah. as as a five-year-older or even okay i'll put you up further as a 10-year-older I mean, are you truly, absolutely knowing that you're witnessing history right here and this should be preserved? And, and... uh uh-uh. So, no, I'm just I, saying, I, like... I had no, I just thought what I was witnessing was great music. And um, being a musician was a lousy job. You know, like in, growing up in a middle class family, you know. Oh, work, working class uh, musician. And I had, I had uh, like, my, my uncle. Uh, my mother's side had been in the Paul Whiteman Orchestra. He was a hot jazz violinist, mm-hmm. and uh, he played in that orchestra. And then when the Depression came, he and his brothers all went to medical school and became doctors. So in my family, it was kind of like my father and my grandfather had really raised themselves up. You know, my, my grandfather was an orphan, and... Uh, he became a doctor. He went to medical school when he was 44 years old. Oh, wow. And, and so it was all like, you're going to get an education. You're going to work. <laughs> you know, you're going to take care of yourself. You're going to provide. You're going to be a provider. And boy, don't she just love this music, music but you're not going to be a musician. There's never any. So any, they didn't encourage you to. It's really amazing. You know, it's like my father, like uh, I was playing rock and roll and he, he would Every now and then, he would show up at some gig, and he'd just embarrass the hell out of me. You know, he'd stand there, and he'd go like, turn it down. <laughs> <Really>? <laughs> you know, and, and this was when we were, like, playing through one Fender amp, and it was set on volume three. You know? Right. Just <laughs> way too loud. So I didn't know, and, and uh, I didn't get... Um, I didn't make my leap into the great unknown until I was about 21 years old because the whole time I was playing, I was just having the greatest time in the world. I had always had the best band in town wherever I was and was working more than anybody, you know, just, we had, we just had the best time and it was just fun. And I went to the university of Wisconsin, went back to Madison and I spent a, about eight months, I took a, a a year and went to Europe, and I went to the University of Copenhagen. And I was going to be a, a a a writer and a journalist in uh, comparative literature, creative writing, that kind of stuff. And I, and it was the first time since I was twelve years old I hadn't had a band. You know, I didn't actually play any gigs for about seven months, 
and I, I just couldn't stand it. And I got back to the States, got my band right back together at, at the University of Wisconsin, and then um, I just had a meeting one day with my student advisor, counselor, you know, and I was looking at these guys arguing over the size of their desks and stuff, and I just went, Not for you. I'm done. I'm a musician. And uh, I was lucky because Muddy Waters and Howlin' Wolf and Paul Butterfield were all playing in an, in nightclubs in a small area in Chicago all the time. So just 90 miles away, that's, that's as far as I had to go to jump into this very mature, beautiful music scene. That I was going to ask, how I know that Milwaukee and, and Chicago are in proximity to each other, but how did those records, how did, those, how did that blues scene even get to you at the time in was well, all, all when just you like were everybody's all records so were they on the radio at the time or was it still like race music in and- in, in in uh texas uh was i mean in milwaukee it was all records and you know uh when i got to texas texas was like a really different place and and radio top 40 radio was invented in dallas at KLIF by a guy named huh? Gordon McClendon. Yeah, I used to play the sitar on those radio ads that KLIF, those were all made at <laughs> Pam's recording studio in Dallas and sold all over the United States. And guys who owned radio stations went, okay, we like this program. Let's do this top 40 thing, this top 10 thing. And they, they built all that there. Before that happened, um, the, the, you heard all kinds of music on, on uh, pop radio, on AM radio. And we had, we had like, um, uh, there was a station called WRR uh, in Dallas that played nothing but blues at night. And it was like a, a blues pedagogy. This guy, Jim Lowe, was just the greatest DJ in the world. And he just played all blues records. Mm-hmm. So that was like something that everybody growing up listened to blues, liked blues. We were we were into like, you know, little Walter had hit records in Dallas when I was like oh, 13 and 14 years old. You know, Bo Diddley, all those guys were just right there. And they came through town a lot and played a lot. So there was this music scene that people went to and it was And you would see these shows? Yeah. So back then, like, how much would a show cost to to see these acts? Like, what was the typical billing? Oh, um, Frankie Avalon. I mean, uh, Frankie Lyman and the Teenagers and Al Hibbler and Chuck Berry and uh, the Cadillacs or somebody like that would come through and it'd be like $2 at the Sportatory. <laughs> wow. wow. <laughs> you know, and... As a package tour and just... Yeah, they were all package tours then. How long would those shows be? Because you... you I'd see the the marquee of some of these shows, and I would think that okay, even at three to four songs each, this could be a three to four hour affair. But I know that they're doing matinee shows, afternoon shows, evening shows, night shows, and yeah, uh, they were. Um, you know, I kind of remember them as being like three hours long. You know, we used to go to the Sportatorium. The Sportatorium had the big D Jamboree, and it had all the R and B shows, mm-hmm. and. They had the there really weren't a lot of rock shows there you know there wasn't a lot like I remember when 
um, uh, Carl Perkins showed up at one of these shows and did blue suede shoes. And that was like a, oh, wow, this is really different. And they came up out of the crowd. They had a big double bass and a cocktail drum. And he just like jumped up out of the stage. It was during Al Hibbler's act. Okay. And came and did a few things, and everybody went nuts, and then he left. So that's kind of what it was. You'd do three tunes and then move on. It wasn't anything like it is now. And um, So you're saying that these shows that you saw, it was mostly black acts and the idea of like Elvis culture and, and, and more white-oriented rock acts that were the people that would establish it. You know, like, like the... Like, that uh, was... The, that yeah, was the, they were R and B shows that came came through that everybody went to, and then when the the white acts came through, like I, went, I remember seeing Ricky Nelson, mm-hmm. you know, with James Burden, wanted to go see James Burden play guitar, and and uh, he was big enough to come and do a show in a theater. He played at the Majestic Theater, mm-hmm. but mainly it was like uh, you know these arena kind of big uh, all-star review kind of shows. Was the term rock and roll even popular by that point? Or uh, is it kind no, of... Not, or was no. it still race music? No, it was... You know, we didn't call it race music, but uh, it was um, totally segregated mm-hmm. on the airwaves, but it wasn't... Uh, I mean, people, li- you know, everybody listened like everybody I went to school with listened to KNOK, which was the black radio station, because that was always going to be a lot better than uh, KLIF, which had like, you Mills know, Frankie Avalon. <laughs> no, no, or, you know, like, if you go back and, and sort of look at the, the pop list and stuff and, and don't make fun of the Mills Brothers. They're great. You know, that's ever. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, it was like there was this really square white music and like guys like Pat Boone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Pat Boone had a TV show in Fort Worth where he, he dressed like a soda jerk. He had that, mm-hmm. you know, the, the little white paper hat on mm-hmm. and saying all those groovy versions of and he was going to be like Bing Judy Crosby. Fruity. Right. That's that's where that was going. We weren't interested so in So even any then of there that. was counter you're saying that there was counterculture totally. in mainstream squares. Totally. That's that's sort of played. So music I was walking since. around in the seventh grade with my Jimmy Reed records going, Listen to this, <laughs> baby. Okay. <laughs> you know, and And, and what uh, were people saying back to you? Oh yeah, right. everybody they loved it. it. Yeah. Everybody loved it, and we we uh, um, t- hell. I used to back up Jimmy Reed when I was fourteen years old. We we played and backed up Jimmy Reed, and Jimmy Reed was like one of the most popular acts in Dallas, in Dallas, mm-hmm. for white kids, black kids. It didn't matter. You know, he was. Those were hit records. So you must have been the shit at fourteen to like your peers, right? Because oh, you're playing yeah. behind him, so. What was that like? Well, you you know, you, nobody even cared about that. Really, there wasn't anybody. So you didn't my, pimp like fourteen year old My school went. Uh, no, 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 okay. no. We were our bar band. <laughs> there weren't, you know, these careers that exist now. You, people like us sitting here right mm-hmm. now, pontificating about how great <laughs> we were and how important it was and how deep we thought didn't even exist. If you were a a musician, you know, you were working in bars and nightclubs or you were on the Dick Clark bus, you know, with 40 people, you know, mm-hmm. going to town, to town, to town. And 
there wasn't uh, nothing was you know the people that had the big careers were like Bob Hope and uh, uh, <laughs> Annette Funicello. Wow, and, like TV and, stars uh, almost. Yeah, yeah, it was. They were on TV and and um, you know careers lasted eighteen months and uh, you weren't nobody thought they could make a living doing this and. I never thought I would ever make a record until I saw Paul Butterfield when I was 21 and he was like, he had signed a record and they were writing about him. And I went, he got a record? Man, I can do that. Right. <laughs> I could get a record deal. <laughs> now, I'd been fooling around with tape all my life, playing with it, never thinking uh, anything like we think now or right. did in the 60s or the 70s or the 80s. None of that even existed as, as an idea in the 50s. Yo, what's up? This is Fonte, Fontigolo from Team Supreme. Black representation in media is very important to me. I think it's important to have our stories told by people who look like us and who have shared in our common experiences. Some of my earliest influences were Donnie Simpson. Uh, I would also say Tom Joyner, Angela Stribling, uh, Sherry Carter. They were just people who told our stories with a lot of class and dignity and were big inspirations to me. The next generation of influential black voices can be found on NPR's new collection, Black Stories, Black Truths. Black Stories, Black Truths is a celebration of blackness from NPR. Each of NPR's black voices are as distinct, varied, and nuanced as the black experience itself. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and creating world-shifting things out of struggle. Every episode is a living account about what it means to be black today, told from a unique black perspective. From Bobby Schmurder to The Wire, Michelle Obama to Reparations, there's no limit to the range of black stories, black truths. Black perspectives haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story. Now, they are the story. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the Black experience. Hear a feed of episodes from across NPR's podcast, The Center Black Voices. It's NPR Noir. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR, wherever you get podcasts. All right, y'all. You know what season it is. Tis the season for spring breaking and planning our summer travel. And if you're like me, you're already in your Airbnb app trying to find which spot is right for you. Now, listen, while I'm looking to spend all this money, what I'm not doing is thinking about making money with Airbnb. See, you got to change your mind state. Make the money while you're spending the money. How, you say, Laia, do I make the money? Well, you host at your house. And I know what you're thinking. I mean, my whole house? Uh, well, no, you don't have to do your whole house. I mean, you could do a room or, you know, do the whole house. So make some money while you're spending some money this summer. I'm trying to tell you, your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. You mentioned about uh, these shows in sports arenas. Okay, because I know that you're a, a stickler for sound and engineering. Just because I, I'm from an era in which, you know, big speakers and backline and those things. How were those shows able to translate 
sonically in a large sports arena with uh, inferior uh, what I what I would assume was inferior sound. Uh, well, an audience was uh, generally they weren't big big huge sports arenas like the Sportatorium is what I said. The Sportatorium was like this funky kind of. Yeah, I think it held like 2,500 people or something, and it was a place where they had boxing matches and they mm -hmm. had music, and so it was small enough that, you know, you could sing through your amplifier, and the volume levels were totally different. There were nothing like rock and roll volume levels. The first big rock show I saw was, uh, I mean, where I went, holy cow, look at that, was Paul Revere and the Raiders at Chicago. Mm -hmm. and they were playing to 19,000 people, and they had two voices of the theater, five-foot-by-five-foot speaker boxes, one on each side of the stage, and we were just going, oh, <laughs> look at that. And, of course, you couldn't hear a word. And the the shows were like, you know, it was like those Frank Sinatra shows where everybody was just screaming and passing out, stuff like that. And so you yeah, didn't always, hear anything. I always you know? wondered about that because I know that's why the Beatles stopped doing shows because they're like, you can't hear us anyway. Well, <laughs> the, the Beatles stopped doing shows because they thought they were going to be assassinated. Yeah. And I was about to say, you were there for that yeah. mighty argument. I'll get to that in a bit. <laughs> yeah, they, they thought they were going to be killed. But, but like if you look at the Shea Stadium show, you know, like the way I see this, that, that Shea Stadium show, I go, wow, look at that. They're on second base. They're, what, 120 feet away from the audience. Right. And look, there's three bookshelf speakers. There's one on the ground named here, there's one there, and there's a little one in the front. You know, and you just go, what were these people thinking? Can't hear them you at know, all. Couldn't hear anything. So that was like one of the things I'm – proud of that I actually worked hard on was we went from that era to building the PAs to getting the stuff that everybody enjoys right now in ear monitors. You had to fight for You know, in ear monitors, man, I spent $300,000 developing those. You wow. know? Oh, wait, you literally. Yeah, you oh, know. Speak on that, please. Well, <laughs> very interesting. So there was this guy in California who was kind of nuts who Stevie Wonder had hired, and uh, he had, Stevie was playing, he had one little earpiece, and um, it was, the way they figured out how to do it was you had a little transformer and a little FM transmitter, mm -hmm. and you made this custom earpiece and one earpiece, and then he stopped doing it, and it just sat there for five years, and I had taken a lot of time off in the 80s. I thought my career was over there from 83 to like 88 or something like that. And uh, was convinced, hey, no, man, come back. You know, you can do shows and everything. So I, I was doing shows. And when I got back, the size of the monitors on the stage were the size of an icebox mm -hmm. laying on the floor. And I, I had a 22-year-old kid running my monitors. And it was so loud, I, I fired him. I got hired another kid, fired him, and then I got an audiologist out and I put a body cavity, one of those plastic things, and <laughs> put, started measuring. And I said, you see, man, it's 121 dB out here. You're fired. And I tested everybody's <laughs> hearing. And I tested, we had a crew and everything. It was like 55 people, and we were doing these big, big outdoor shows. And I tested everybody's hearing from the truck and bus drivers to the musicians. Oh. And the guy that had the best hearing was my 
house mixer. The guy who had the second best hearing was my monitor mixer. I had the third best hearing, and everybody else was deaf. They had just (laughs) dropped at 4,000 K, just wonk. Nobody could hear any siblings. Nobody could hear anything from all this damage. So we went and found this guy. We built five FM transmitters. We had separate power units because if the feds caught us, they would take the power units. So... We had wow. Japanese <laughs> wow. Japanese FM radios for our transmitter receivers because they had a lower FM frequency than we had here, yeah. and we broadcast the shows. I mean, it, it was a three-block area, and so what was cool about it was if you were one of the bus drivers, you could turn on the radio and listen to the show. <laughs> what was dangerous about it was all the sound checks were being broadcast. Every time we turned the thing on, we were broadcasting about three-block area. So you couldn't and talk shit about last night's meal or... <laughs> you, you, hey, what the... You know, right, right, what, right. what are you... You know, you had... I mean, it was like we're on the air and we could really be fine, seriously. So we snuck around and did that. Oh, wait. So you had to... Even though it was for monitor purposes... You're still using the FCC. You still always. had to use the FCC? Yeah. Well, no, we were illegally broadcasting yeah. FM. Trend. We pirate, had, radio. Uh, pirate radio. Yeah. Pirate, pirate radio. radio. Josh Peterson five, episode. We had five <laughs> pirate radio stations stacked up so each guy could hear. Yeah. This is how shit gets invented. It's always simple and really dumb. And, <laughs> and so here we are, and we're setting this up every night. And we're broadcasting, and we're the first band that ever went out wearing ear monitors. And the ear monitors were made out of clay, and they really hurt. And we went out there, and I remember the first night I went out on a stage in front of like 18,000 people in ear monitors. The whole band's in it. We're the first band. And it was like kind of dangerous, but then... You know, then we went, okay, now we got to like process the sound. You know, everything's got to sound good. Oh, now we got the sound processed. Now we got to figure out how this transmission stuff is going to work. And then uh, some a guy named Marty Garcia came in and said, FM transmitters, are you guys nuts? <laughs> yeah, let me show you how to do this. And I went, here's the money, man, build it. And went from there. And here's... Yeah, in ears. Wow. Did you well, get any thank yous from the neighborhood? Like anybody ever come up to you like, man, that show was awesome last night. I sat on my couch. And- <laughs> no, and we never got busted. Oh, wow. You know, we got away with it. I still have these things, man. They're in my warehouse. Dude. And it's like, it's like, you know, it's like the first space capsule or something. It's, <laughs> and you look at it and just go. But, you know, it's like tape echo and the stuff Les Paul worked on. Yeah. Uh, all of these ideas start from, you know, you kind of go like, I got to get this done. Honey, hand me that vacuum cleaner. I'm going to hook this thing up and blow that thing out there and turn this on and make this organ work. Necessity you know? is the mother of invention. Yeah, you just you do what you got to do. And, and um, it's, uh, you know, I just did it because I needed it. I didn't do, do it to, you know, to, start a, to start a company the- or, or do anything like that. I just knew that I wanted to protect my hearing for 
life. Um, well, <laughs> you know? that's the show, ladies and gentlemen. Right. Yeah, yeah, thank right. you very that's much. Pretty much for, your entire career. Uh, yeah. 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 So I brought an audiologist, and we're going to test everybody now. Larry, come on in. We need that. We need for real. So wait, did you? <laughs> did you develop it to the point where it was like, did you patent it? Did yeah. you sell it to Shure? No, no. I gave it to Marty. And, and, and look, there are, you know, it's like all this kind of stuff. A lot of uh, people were thinking about it. But I was the guy who went like, I can't work in this situation. You guys got to stop this. This is nuts. You know, I, I mean, if you're on a stage and it's 120 dB... You can't sing, you can't think, you can't rest, you can't sleep after the show, you can't hear the next day, you know, wow. the, you know all that. I get it. So that's, uh, that had to be fixed. So that, that was all. And I remember kind of thinking like, you know, uh, it, it took off really quickly. People, you know, right away people wanted to know about it. And, and the uh, Marty started a company and started you know, doing in-ear monitors. And the last in-ear monitor story was like, so now it's like 1992 or 93 or something. And um, the dead want to have an in-ear monitor system. And they know that we had used, we had been using it now for four years, you know. They said, well, we want to work with you guys. Let's go do 10 shows together or something. And I said, okay. So in my in-ear monitor system with the band, I have a little foot switch where I can like step on the switch and it takes my voice out of the PA, but I can talk to the sound guy or the light guy, or I can say, Hey, you know, there's some guy down here. There's two guys in a fight in the front row. You need to come fix that. Or, yeah. you know, something's wrong or yeah. go to the bridge or forget the next song or whatever. Yeah. And it's, it's so weird because, you know, it's like I'm talking to you and then it's going, <laughs> yeah, well, all right, then we're going to go. You, you see when you're doing it and you like you kind of realize people they don't they, they don't even them. notice it's right. like weird you can do all this you know? mm -hmm. so that's that's the band leader control so the first show I'm doing with the dead at some football stadium there's 80,000 people we go out they immediately invite me to come out and jam I go out and put on my ear in ear monitors and they're all arguing with each other while Somebody's playing a solo. So, listen now, man. You know, you should have just this giant conversation. Like yeah. Everybody, everybody's got their own pedal. Everybody's got their own thing. Nobody's Yo. listening to anybody. They're just like it was just all night long. You know, I just went, man. How can you guys do that, sir? You know? You've literally described a roots concert. Yeah. <laughs> that is crazy. Hey, Steve, yeah. was was that in Buffalo by any chance? Uh, that was the last gig of that tour. Okay, I was yeah. at that Were show there? actually. Yeah, yeah, that was that was a really uh, amazing run. That it was, was like 91, 92, 92 maybe. I think like it was ninety two. You know, because yeah. I was in the parking lot during the, your um, opening set. <laughs> and what yeah. were you doing? What were you doing? It was a Grateful Dead show. Yeah. Everyone was in the parking lot. Yeah. You know, those shows were really funny. Bands that played with the Grateful Dead usually got shunned. You know, like I, I, Sting had done it before I'd done it. And they said, yeah, you know, like there'd be 11,000 people in the stadium while Sting was doing his set. And well, that wasn't going to happen with me. And so uh, we went out and we just started and we just started with like 
four or five hits. And by the third hit, people just running into the stadium. And by mm. the time our set was over, the whole stadium would be singing along, and then we'd turn it over to Jerry. Mm. <laughs> so did yeah, they figure – thinking. It's interesting because you said when you got with them, it was kind of like a two-for-one deal. Like on top of getting the band, they get the, the in-ear monitors. Is that what most bands were thinking at, the, at that time about you guys? No, no. They had, they had got – a system they wanted uh, they wanted uh, to see how we used it they wanted to learn how they wanted the best they what? wanted to learn how to do it you know and see see how it worked and uh, that was you know uh, real common I remember um, Guns and Roses came by oh, one wow. day you know and wanted to see how the in-ear monitors were because we were the guys who had the in-ear mm-hmm. monitors you know and uh, that's weird because I've I've thought that it was invented. Because by the time we started using it in like 2000, I thought like, well, okay, this is probably like three years old already. I thought like any <laughs> monitors nope. came around like, yeah, 1997 or something. No, I was like 10, 11 years old by then. Oh, wow. But, you know, you have to develop that stuff. But for me, I think because of Les, you know, and, and being uh, uh, around him when I was little and like you were saying, well, did you know... I didn't know he was a genius. I didn't know anything about him except that he he was like this great, great guitarist, and he was really funny. Every show he did was always sold out. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, he always had somebody come and sit in with him. So one night I'm in the club, and Tal Farlow comes into the club. And it's like a gunfighter cutting session. You know, everybody, mm-hmm. Tal Farlow's here, and Les Paul's right in the middle of some great solo, and he just puts the handkerchief over his hand, and he's just playing, and Tal, so Cal can't steal his licks. <laughs> that kind really? of... Really? Yeah. Wow. Really. Man. It's like spy <laughs> versus spy, man. man. I mean, I just, you know, pulled the handkerchief without, you know, it just... Just <laughs> <laughs> nonchalantly just tossed it over. And he must have practiced it a thousand times, you know, but... But that's what it was like hanging out with him. And so I got so lucky to be around the technology, the idea of recording, the idea of promoting a single, the idea of having fun at a show, and that it's a jam session. The cats are all coming by, and they're all going to play. And so, you know, Charles Mingus was at the house in Milwaukee, Red Norville, Tal Farlow. You're just casually mentioning life right now. Giants. uh, And they were just adults. They were just people, you know, hanging out and listening to the tape recorder and drinking and laughing and having a good time, you know. And so that was the way I saw life, you know, when I started. And then we took that and moved it to Texas, and we were considered communists. Yeah, <laughs> you know, you went into and, uh, you know, my dad was arrested for having a race party at his laboratory. Oh you man! You know, because he had uh, uh, black technicians and white technicians working together in, in a laboratory. Two of the technicians went on to become pathologists, and um, they were arrested, photographed, handcuffed picture on the front page of the Dallas Morning News and he was described as like a swanky, you know, kind of sleazy, swanky doctor having a race party. 
and they were working. And they were working, right? Yeah, they, were, they were. It was like three o'clock in the afternoon on December the twenty. Probably just having December, a beer. <laughs> December twenty third, the lab Christmas party. Who would do that? Oh, oh, God. God. Well, you know, racists, racists. You know, yeah. And and uh, I want to be a sleazy, swanky doctor. <laughs> you are. You are. Steve. You are. Steve. You are. Yeah. Well, you know, <laughs> swanky's good. <laughs> so, uh, has have has Les left you any of his like artifacts? Like, did he give you your first guitar? Do you have like an amp that he? Oh well, yeah. Take this tape recorder, kid. You, yeah, uh, I don't do have any of the tape recorders. I have a guitar. I have a, a one a Gibson one seventy five that uh, he gave me. And what I used to steal from him is guitar picks, and uh, it was a big joke because mm-hmm. uh, the well, the first time I went to see Les play at Fat Tuesdays. You know, he worked at Fat Tuesdays for he he stayed in New York for 30 years. He had his heart attack at 63 when he was 63 years old, and then he played until he was 93. So I hadn't seen him in a while. I mean, I hadn't seen him in like seven or eight years. And and I'd been on the road and was in New York, and he, he was playing, and I went, God, I'm going to go see Les. So I, I go to see him, and I go say hi, and come on up here, kid. Come on, you know, come on, play, come on, play something, you know. And I said, well, gosh, I didn't bring my guitar, which he thought was just, awful that I was so dumb not to bring my guitar up. But on top of the piano was this white Les Paul Deluxe model with three gold pickups and mm-hmm. just beautiful. He says, here, take this. Mm-hmm. And he gives me that guitar and uh, I didn't have a pick. He hands me a pick. I get the guitar, plug it in, and we start to play and I notice that the volume control doesn't work. It's totally out of tune. The tuning pegs don't work. Nothing works on it. You know, and so I got the Stooge guitar, right? Mm-hmm. You know, bring your own axe right. next time. That's right. Lesson <laughs> learned. Yeah. Yes, indeed. And, and then, uh, you know, so there I am, you know. And, and then I looked down at the pick that I had borrowed from him, and it was made out of plexiglass, and it had some, some sandpaper turned at a certain angle. It had been glued on. It was a handmade pick. No. And I went, oh. <laughs> and so every time I would see him, I'd try and get some of he his picks. And he didn't like it, you know. And I finally, was a, I was doing a show like this. It was being filmed, and he was sitting right here. And I said, you know, Les is 86 years old, and, you know, he's such an interesting man. He's always working on things. I bet you he's got a pocket full of custom-made picks right now. Come on, Les, let's see. And he, he pulled them out and put them on the table, bed, and I just scooped it up. <laughs> <laughs> and, right up it. and so I have this beautiful collection of his handmade picks and one of his guitars. Nice. <laughs> and, and, but the best thing was I used to talk to him at least once a month, and he'd call me up and start talking to me, and, and I wouldn't even know what he was talking about. He'd be talking about digital this and digital that, and I'd be going, well... Gee, I don't know, Les. Uh, he, mm-hmm. was, he was so far ahead of of, uh, of everything and everybody and, and that. But it was all simple. His ideas were all real simple. All right, y'all. You know what season it is. Tis the season for spring breaking and planning our summer travel. And if you're like me, you're already in your Airbnb app trying to find which spot is right for you. Now, listen, while I'm looking to spend all this money... What I'm not doing is thinking about making money with Airbnb. See, you got to change your mind state. Make the money while you're spending the money. How, you say, Laia, do I make the money? Well, you host at your house. 
And I know what you're thinking. I mean, my whole house? Uh, well, no, you don't have to do your whole house. I mean, you could do a room or, you know, do the whole house. So make some money while you're spending some money this summer. I'm trying to tell you, your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Okay. I love Walker Hayes. He's amazing. He's so fun. Such a great entertainer. And that's why I'm so excited that JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for the everyday guy. The Walker Hayes for JCPenney collection is an upbeat playlist of instant classics with laid-back appeal and down-home vibes. As a dad of seven kids, he knows exactly what fathers want and need when it comes to their style. This collection reflects his casually cool styles with outdoor-inspired details and versatile colors. Perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man, along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th, just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count. So I know that the city of San Francisco, I was about to say, we we do have to start discussing your actual music career. <laughs> no, no, but this, this is the most, I could actually stay off topic, out of your, your discography forever. Um, but you eventually... Uh, migrate to san francisco which is we're considering that even though there's psychedelic uh leanings in a a lot of your music i wouldn't necessarily peg you as part of that dead uh kind of jam band yeah kind of no 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 be happy go lucky even though there are elements of that in in a lot of your music what i'm just like the the witty writing and all that stuff but you were straight blues yeah so So, how did you get into the Bill Graham circle and more specifically, I know that, uh, well, your first record with uh, Chuck Berry, how did that even happen? Because I know that Chuck is notorious. Yeah, I was about to say, I know you have five hours of Chuck Berry's story. (laughs) (laughs) For those that don't know, and this is even from my experience of seeing Chuck in in person as a kid, uh, he never... Sometimes he would meet his band maybe five minutes before going on stage, and similar to that the the Bootsy Collins James Brown story. Yeah, of, yeah. Hey, you yeah, already know, know my material, <laughs> so just hit it. Like Chuck is notorious for just flying into town and yeah. just all right, hit it. Wow, and you're supposed to follow it. What? Tell us a Chuck Berry story, please. Well, Chuck Berry. Yes. The. <laughs> my best Chuck Berry story is the one I should have told Keith Richards before he made the movie. Oh, oh. <laughs> oh no. Oh, man. So we Fight walk time. Off, we walk <laughs> off the stage and I say, if you ever fucking do that to me again, you motherfucker, get your own fucking band, get your own fucking amplifier, and get your own people, man. Fuck you. I'm never going to back you up again. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Keith Tarantino. That was the end. Now go to the beginning. <laughs> Right. Right. No, no. And then from that time on, he was great. What did he do? What did he, yeah, what did he do? 
He well, was Chuck Berry, bro. Well, no, no, no. Look, there, there are two guys that used to do this trick. So now this is a Chuck Berry and a Lightning Hopkins story uh, and, okay. and a San Francisco story. Yes. So I dropped acid in Madison in 1963. Okay. And it was lysergic acid. It was pure. I was at that mm. show too. And, <laughs> and that was before anybody knew what it was or what was really going on. And so <laughs> you were so ahead why of your time and it? everything. Right? I'm like, what? <laughs> so, so my first trip was poetry, Marvin Gaye, Ravi Shankar, literature, mind expanding, wow. consciousness oh, you growing thing, you know, <laughs> before there were hippies. Okay. Then I go to, so I'm in Chicago and we're hearing about San Francisco, these gigs in San Francisco, these light show Butterfield's out there, man, and he's like making money and they're playing to like, 1,100 people a night, mm -hmm. not 125 people. And I'm working in a nightclub in Chicago from 9 o'clock at night till 4 o'clock in the morning, six days a week, making $125 a week. And I'm thinking to myself, I got to go to California, man. There's, you know, 1,100 people, $500 a night. Gold I'm, out west. I'm, I'm going, <laughs> you know. So, so the, I'm, you know, the... The beat coming from there was just huge. And then all the bands were coming through Chicago. Chess Records was there, and the Rolling Stones had been through town. And we were doing this blue, we were in this great blues scene that was just magical for mm -hmm. a few years. When and I say magical, it's like, hey, as soon as we finish doing this radio show, Howlin' Wolf's playing across the street, man. Let's go. Hubert's with him. Let's go. You know, and Muddy's going to be here, and Butter's over here, and we're over here, and they're over here, and this and that. It was just like that for like about three years, and then whoosh, it disappeared. San Francisco. So I go to San Francisco, and, and I get out there, and um, I'm living in my Volkswagen bus now. <laughs> okay. Things have, have gone down. I tried to go to music school at the University of Texas. They wouldn't accept me. They wouldn't teach me how to read or write music, so I left. I got to California and I had five bucks in my pocket and I went uh, to see Butterfield play at the at the Fillmore and I saw what the Fillmore was and I went, okay, I got to do it here. This is great. Man, I, that should be me up there. You know, <laughs> I want to mm -hmm. go do that. And I got a gig at the Matrix playing bass for Lightning Hopkins for $10 a night. And this $10 was like a million dollars to me, man. That was that $3 for a tank of gas in the Volkswagen bus and food for a week, you know. Wow. Hey. I needed this money. And it's Lightning Hopkins. So I'm playing bass with Lightning. And as you know, Lightning plays like 13 and a half bar blues and then 14 bar blues and then 10 bar blues. And mm -hmm. you kind of, kind of watch them. And I'm playing with them and I'm kind of doing real good. Mm -hmm. You know, now I'm kind of beginning to play. He goes, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Everybody stop. Nobody do nothing but me. And there's just him and me on the stage. I mean, it's the most embarrassing, humiliating moment of my life, and I needed that $10. <laughs> you, didn't, you didn't get that? Oh, well, I guess. Yeah, I, I, I did. I kept the gig, you know. And, and um, Chuck Berry started doing that to the band. And I just couldn't tolerate that. And, and later, like five or six years later, I was at home by myself and I was watching um, Austin City Limits mm -hmm. and Lightning Hopkins. 
is playing a Stratocaster with a wah-wah pedal just doing this show, killing it with this great blues band behind him. And they're just ripping it up. And all of a sudden he goes, hold it, hold it, hold it. Wait a minute. Everybody stop. Nobody do nothing but me. And I went... <laughs> Oh, it's a riff. It's like, right, yeah, let's right. have a hand for what's your name? You know, it's, welcome to the blues club, you know. And and so uh, when Chuck did that, you know, um, I, I had done so many gigs with him. But first gig I did with Chuck Berry was like, went like this. Bill Graham came to me and says, uh, and you're right. We got, first of all, we got to San Francisco mm-hmm. and I just went, what the hell is this? You know, the Grateful Dead were like standing around for 15 minutes and they do like a bad version of uh, In the Midnight Hour for 20 minutes. It wasn't good. <laughs> right. You know, 20 minutes of like, come on, man. You, you were know? sober watching them? Yeah, yeah. Okay, that explains and, it. Yeah. And, <laughs> yeah. Gee, look at the time, you know. Right. So uh, it, w- it was all the bands were like, uh, they weren't really good bands. And uh, they were like, guys who'd been playing acoustic guitar who decided they were going to get some beetle boots and a groovy coat and a scarf and grow their hair long and have a a rock band and they were going to be rock stars. So I got out there. I'd been working in Chicago where Junior Wells would steal your gig if he sat in, if he could, you know. I mean, everybody had to be really good. Mm -hmm. And I was like, on time, great sets, everything was really good. So I was like the first real professional band in the the scene. (laughs) So right now you're destroying the myth of what we thought that the San Francisco musician was about. (laughs) Like, you're just saying that they were mediocre at best or just... The bands, right. the bands were uh, a social phenomena, but not big on not a musical phenomena. <laughs> okay, no, no, and and you know the Jefferson Airplane was kind of interesting. They did some things good, and then other things were just like insufferably boring. You know, and and it, so it was what I finally realized was I'm standing there going, "What is this?" You know what's going on here? And I finally went, it's a social phenomena. This is like, this is about acid. This is about right. an awakening. Right. This is about a renaissance. This is about a moment in time that's like happens maybe every three or 400 years. It's about everything but music. And and music <laughs> is the, the, the hook they're hanging it on. Mm-hmm. And so... I liked that once I understood it because I went, I get it. It's a social phenomenon. I, I like that. I like that. But I want to change things. I want to see the world change too. I'm. I don't want to have a crew cut anymore. I don't want to go to, you know, some company and get trained for six weeks and then work there for the rest of my life. You know, and do that mm-hmm. that fifties, early sixties thing. Mm-hmm. I, I want a life, a much different life, and so. You know, the the expansion, the mind expansion that took place, then it filtered into the music. And then all of a sudden things started getting good. And what was hip was, uh, so we go to Bill Graham and go, hey, man, you got to get James Cotton out here. You got to get Junior Wells out here. You got to get Howlin' Wolf out here. You got to get Roland Kirk out here. You should get Miles Davis to come here. You know, Johnny Cash should come here and play. You should have, you know, and we just started giving him names. So you were the influence that brought them out? Because that's a lot of us were. No, a lot of us were, you know, but I was like, yeah, I was the guy who went and picked up Howlin' Wolf in my bus, you know, (laughs) 
when he arrived at the airport. You know, James and his band stayed at my house, you know, when they came to town. But, and, I, I, you know, I was there the first night B.B. King played. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was there. I backed up John Lee Hooker on his first night. I did wow. the Chuck Berry show. And the B.B. King show at the Fillmore, you know, they talk about it. And B.B. cried that night and all that stuff. It was pretty amazing. You know, it was like everybody was just, B.B. Oh, King's going to be here, you know. And I'm opening for B.B. King. And, uh, I get, you know, I do my sound check and stuff. And then we're getting ready to play. And I noticed, you know, B.B. King's guitar tech has put B.B. King's Lucille on his guitar stand on the stage during my set, and they got a little spotlight on it. <laughs> <laughs> you know? <laughs> Fuck, what's this? You know, I don't like that, you know? So I'm playing, doing as good as I can, because B.B.'s in the house. You know? <laughs> you know? And I break a string, Uh-oh. and oh, I go... no. And I go... Fuck it. He's going to put his guitar on the uh-uh, stage. No, you Whoa. didn't. No, you didn't. Picked it up. No, plugged it in. Man, look. Hey, this, listen. Man. I'm in competition with B.B. King. I want B.B. <laughs> King's slot. You yes. know? Wow. That's the way music is. You know, there's no, once you play in Chicago, you learn very quickly that this is serious business, you know? And if somebody's fucking around with you in your stage you you know you fuck with them back. back yeah but i wasn't looking to until i broke the string however <laughs> when i picked up lucille Uh-oh. and Alarms plugged it in off. and looked at the controls i went what the fuck <laughs> you know it was just totally bassy and everything and and uh, you know it was one of those stereo Gibson things, you know, which yeah. I've never used. And then um, I got the tone and I, I hit a note. And the guitar was so delicately set up, the bridge collapsed. Oh. And oh, it just went no. plop and the strings went flat. And, and, uh, and I pulled it back up and I kind of put these strings back on it and kind of like, Ended the set and got left the building. Got out of there. <laughs> Wait, yeah. How long is that? You, as that's going on, how long is this process that we that the audience is watching yeah. you like grab the, the guitar? Well, like, I'm sure oh. you didn't let the audience know. What no, was no, it. no, 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 no. That just was like I broke a string, put the guitar down. Here's another one, picked it up. Oops, up, e, e, But good night, ladies and gentlemen. But BB, man, I saw BB come out and do a show one time and break a string, and. Uh, reach into his well first of all he broke a string while he was singing mm-hmm. and he just kept singing never looked at it he went down here and he like took the string off and I'm not making any of this up reached into his pocket and pulled out a string in a package and took the string out and he's singing the whole time he put it in here and he just kept doing yeah. this and then he went Bang! And off he went, you know, and it was wow. like. Without looking once, he just put the string on. I'm telling you, man, I was, he pulled I was pistol as close as this to him. It was in a little club in Sun Valley, Idaho. I was sitting right there like that, and I just went, how? Damn. Many times. You know, it's like the handkerchief trick. Yeah. Like, yeah, how yeah. many times do you have to do that before you can or have that happen, you know? Have you ever tried to do that? Uh, no. <laughs> so, no, I know no. that, I know that you had your eyes on, on Paul Butterfield's slot, you know, yeah. that I want that. 
Um, but one thing you didn't mention was the desire to get a record deal, which I'm wondering, why did you choose San Fran over Los Angeles, and how oh, did yeah. record okay. labels start calling So you? I had a record deal with Barry Goldberg. We had the Goldberg-Miller Blues Band in Chicago. Oh, okay. And, and we got... Uh, he had a, a swanky, sleazy manager. <laughs> <laughs> Steve? Uh, uh, he's my cousin. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And uh, swanky. And, and um, uh, we were given a day and a half to make the record. Damn. And while we were making the record, some guy came in and was going, yeah, you guys, you know, uh, you guys should be doing some Jerry Lee Lewis tunes. Or, you know, he's trying to tell us what to record and what to do and everything. The engineers hated us. The earphone was one of those little black hard rubber things, you know, with one side and a big pole coming out of it. Mm -hmm. We made this record and went to New York, and we were on the Hullabaloo show with the Supremes and the Four Tops. Okay. And um, <laughs> we got, we did the show, and then we stayed in New York and went into the uh, um, a nightclub here right after the Young Rascals left, and we saw the whole New York scene. Went back to Chicago. The whole Chicago scene was gone. Just in two oh, months, it just disappeared because what had happened was Woof and uh, Muddy had gotten gigs in colleges, and now they could make a whole lot more money than mm. playing in nightclubs. Their careers were over when when we were all working in Chicago. They had had their hits. It was done. They were back in Chicago, and they were just working you know, in nightclubs. Mm -hmm. That's the only work they got. And now they were, the whole scene just dispersed. So, um, and I had a gig playing rhythm guitar and Buddy Guy's band and for three weeks. And uh, you had to have a shot of bourbon before each set. And there were like seven sets a night. Oh, <laughs> God. And I lasted like three weeks and just said, Buddy, I can't do this anymore. <laughs> and I went and I got to San Francisco. So, what happened in San Francisco? was, okay, I'd had a record deal. I realized a whole bunch of things really quickly, and I had gotten out of that deal um, forcefully. I made them fire me in Chicago and publicly <laughs> because I figured I, I was going to have a contractual problem with Barry's manager later, which I did, but I kicked his butt, so it was okay. <laughs> but, so I went to, to uh, San Francisco and... Was there for about six or seven months. Did the Chuck Berry thing, which just came up out of nowhere. Like, hey, Chuck Berry's coming to town. Made him rehearse for two days. We. I'm surprised he did that. Yeah. What he did that was upsetting was he rehearsed for two days. And we hung for two days, had a great time. And then five minutes before the show started, a friend of his showed up. They went out and got high on some smack or something, and he came in and did the whole show like at halftime. It was just mm. oh, damn. very slow set, and that was disappointing. You know, but so um, now I'm seeing this, and now there's a feeding frenzy in San Francisco to sign anything that's walking. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, they were giving thirty thousand dollars to anybody. It's like Seattle. And, uh, yeah, oh yeah, yeah, like the grunge thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, ten times what it was in Seattle. It really? was so. I mean, I had fourteen record companies giving me offers. Fourteen of them. So now I'm in a feeding frenzy, and I got everything's going the way I want it to go because 
I'd had a little taste of the record business, and I learned very quickly that I wanted complete artistic control over everything, every picture, every cover, every album, everything they said, anything they put out, any music I did. I had to own all the publishing, all of it. That's real. I had to own my songwriting. No, you can't have any of that. Wow. And not only that... I need enough money and a no-cut contract to make five albums because i got to learn how to do this. <laughs> Smart thinking. Yeah, and and uh, Wait, How did you learn to, to yeah, ask for all that? Yeah, I was like, yeah. who was your, it Running wasn't your lawyer. When you, you run a band from the time you're 12 years old, mm. life is really simple. You know, like the things I just told you, you know, when you talk to brilliant musicians and they go, God, man, how did you... How are you so smart to know you should keep your publishing? Because I kept track of the money, clown. <laughs> mm. okay. You know what? You think somebody's going to take care of that for you? No, nobody ever takes care of that. You know, and so Preach. like if somebody said, hey, man, we want you to come to Shreveport, Louisiana and play a gig. We're going to pay you $125. I'd say, well, that'll cover the gas. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's going to be $2,000 or whatever. I mean, I just... And and I always you manage said, yourself. It sounds like I always said I'm not going to like gouge anybody, but I'm not going to be taking advantage of. I just want to be in a kind of a little win-win situation for everybody, except with the record company. And I had a friend <laughs> who was a prosecuting attorney in San Francisco, and he didn't care about being a music industry lawyer because all music industry lawyers work for record companies exactly. yeah. Yeah. rather than I'll, don't worry about that I'll go take care of Jimi Hendrix I'll get him signed up here and everything mm -hmm. will be great you know whatever that happened all the time my guy was didn't care and I went to him and I said These, this is like slavery they want to you know but you know if I sell a million records they're going to want to give me a car you know, <laughs> you know $4,000 in cash and stuff. This is the way it's treated, you know. And uh, I want to own everything, and these are the things I want. And so we just started, and they said, well, nobody gets that. And I said, well, I don't want it. I'm not signing. And I, I wouldn't – what I did was said no for nine months. And it's like the term of pregnancy, you know. <laughs> it took nine months of just no thanks, nope. Nah, he's not, not interested. And I had guys coming to see me and asking me to do all kinds of stupid things. And every time a record company would say like, well, hey, man, why don't you come on over to the studio tomorrow morning? We'd like to cut some tracks, see how you guys do in the studio. I'd go, you expect me to carry my gear from a <laughs> You just saw what I do and you want me to come over and you want to test me? You go back to Hollywood and tell the president of the record company if he wants to talk to me, here's my number. You know, and, wow. and I so had everyone just, was a suit. Everybody was a suit. Was there and they anyone were that was like hip? Because you hear no. people like, I'm so passionate about music. But were they all just suits? No, they were all suits and they were all hustlers. And we really began to look at everybody from L.A. as kind of like a weasel and a rat. Mm. And and <laughs> somebody was trying to steal everything. And I did my contract. I got my contract done. And I brought my contract then to a community band meeting at the Carousel Ballroom and gave it to everybody and said, this is what you need to get. So there was this kind of community going on. Mm -hmm. uh, we had our newspapers and our poster art and our shows, and we were, we were inventing it all. It was all coming from San Francisco. L.A. wasn't turning out any, anything except pop crap. 
you know, come to San Francisco, wear some flowers in your hair, mm -hmm. you know, that kind of stuff. And we were like beginning to go out. And so when we would come to your town, it was like we were carrying the culture on a platter. Here we are. Here's the culture. Here's what it is. Here's the light show. Excuse us while we jam on Fly Like an Eagle for an hour, you know. <laughs> and it just, that's what it turned into. And, and it, it grew and grew and grew and grew. And people came from all over the world. So there's a huge awakening. And it happened in San Francisco. And it happened around psychedelic drugs, really. And it happened in an area where there was a lot of um, leeway for artists and bohemians and poets. And, you know, San Francisco's a, a really great place. And then it... Um, uh, Were you the lone cynic in that whole atmosphere? Yeah, for a while I was. You walk you down know. Hate Street and people just put a flower in your lapel and... I was a cynic about the bands. I sort of regret a lot of what I said about a lot of these people I've now known for 50 years and they're still playing, you know, but I used to go, this is just such nonsense. Well, I know, you know? you're saying it now in hindsight, but were you that honest back when you were doing press, 68, 69, 70, like, yeah, yeah, yeah slash whatever. You know, like oh no no, it was there was no sly stone well, whatever. Well, I, I, okay, that was my uh, <laughs> I, Jefferson airplane. Just, Man, Jefferson I, airplane. I was in the studio while Sly was cutting his tracks, and I never heard rhythm tracks like that in my life. Just a <laughs> the whole building was just doing it. Uh, I I opened for Sly one time, another hard gig. Yeah, because he didn't show up. <laughs> no, no, no. This was this was when Sly was healthy and he was okay. Oh damn, what was that? And like? and he was unbelievable is what it was like it was one of the greatest nights you ever saw in your life and i'm down to like playing as a power trio you know i okay. you know it's like we're a power trio now because that's all we could afford we're opening for sly you know it's like 19 whatever it was and people are going get the fucking stage where's Sly oh, you know uh, <laughs> and I'm like playing Space Cowboy or something oh, like that going, wow. this really hurts I gotta get off the stage <laughs> I'm gonna leave now so you know I go off and, and I'm watching Sly play and it's the only time in my life I've ever left a building I said we have to leave the building because that balcony is gonna collapse come on we gotta go right now what? right now the balcony was doing this it was going up and down oh, like man. that up and down. you know and then it was kind of going like that Yikes. you know and, and there, seriously yeah seriously i've never seen any, never seen That's that in my life i tell you man i had to, i left the building because i just thought you know i took my my guys with me and i said we have to leave we have to get outside this is not this isn't gonna last, you know. But Sly was until the, the drug. Sly was like one of the greatest things that ever happened. And it. and I didn't like the San Francisco bands, and I didn't like the, much of the San Francisco music. And I, you know, I like Moby Grape. You know, uh, I kept seeing all the bands, like you know, when Stephen Stills and the Buffalo Springfield mm -hmm. came in. You know, like. Didn't like them. I didn't like that kind of cowboy buckskin Gretsch guitar thing. <laughs> 
I, they were all egomaniacs. He's, he's they, the me of the of the I know. They, <laughs> didn't, they didn't really get down and play, you know. And the band I did like was the Doors. Oh wow! Okay. okay. You know, Doors came up and I came up, man. That's that's smart, man. That guy's got that little bass thing there, and it's real clear, and it sounds good, you know, because. Most of the time, it sounded pretty bad, you know, and um, these bands really, they didn't have enough experience. I had already played, you know, a thousand gigs from the, you know, the seventh grade through college. I mean, I had really played a lot and mm -hmm. was, you know, wanted things to sound good. You know, sound was a big, important part. And then, you know, when the dead started, like, their approach, this would be the San Francisco approach to sound. 200 Macintosh stereo amplifiers hooked up to a bunch of speakers stacked right behind the band. The temperature behind the stage was 470 yeah, degrees. Yeah, I was going right. to say. You know, I mean, people, <laughs> you know, the, the approach was like um, crazy and, and drugged out and too much money and too much stuff. And like, I looked at all those bands, like they all had kind of drug dealers for for managers so they mm -hmm. had all this money they were the local guys i was from out of town i had to make my way i had to you know do my way i felt like i personally kept the fillmore auditorium open for bill graham i played there 120 times mm. you know i mean when they needed help i was the guy that had them. to be you know but uh the scene just grew and it kept growing and it it uh, it got better and it gave me a place where I could do a stake and get a recording contract. My concept of a recording contract was like the Beatles or something, man. I, I was going, man, I can't wait to get in there and make some records. And I'd worked as a, you know, janitor at a recording studio in Dallas. And I had been ping ponging back and forth and quarter inch track tapes, you know, stereo machines for years and working on all of this stuff, trying to, you know, get stuff together. But, um, very rarely was able to get into a studio. Mm -hmm. And the studios were crappy. You know, they were like four track. Mm -hmm. And then it was eight track. And then it was 12 track. And then it was 16 track. And then it was... So getting a record deal, being able to, to do that, I thought was going to be really great. And I, I went down to L.A., to do the first sessions at Capitol Records. And I'm thinking, man, I finally signed the deal. I got everything I want. These guys are going to help me produce my record. This is going to be really great. Got there and they said, well, your studio time starts at midnight. And so said, well, why is that? And they said, well, you know, the studios are booked, but we've, we've got you a session at midnight. Okay. And we, man, we'd driven down in the, the bus, you know, with the, we had the B3 in there, the band in there, everything, you know, the Leslie, all our stuff. We get in there and set it all up. And um, it's about three o'clock in the morning, about time we're ready to really start recording. <laughs> and I just said, you know, I'm, I'm too tired, but, you know, we're set. We got, you know, we got a good drum sound. Let's, let's come back tomorrow and we'll start. Okay. I said, well, it's going to be midnight again. I said, well, all right. So we get there at, you know, 11 o'clock or, you know, and they say, you're going to have to move all your equipment from Studio B to Studio A because somebody else needs Studio oh, B. Now you got to set everything yeah. up so again. So we move it and we set it up and we get ready to record and the engineering department walks out. What? What now? We walk out. Oh, Walked man. out of the building. They just left. And we were just standing there. What do you mean? the They what? So 
I go call my executive producer, John Palladino, and I say, you know, I'm here at the studio. This is what's happened in the last two days. You can have your money back. You can have your contract back. You know, I'm, I'm done here. You know, and oh, no, 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 no. And that's when, you know, I went, okay, this, I've been so naive and stupid about record companies. You know, this, there's nobody's going to help me do anything. I'm in a cesspool where everybody's fighting for the same resources. And guess what? All the engineers are sort of right-wing crew-cut kind of Vietnam vet kind of guys who don't like me at all. Mm-hmm. In fact, they don't really want me here because I'm this dirty hippie, you know. And that's what it was. So uh, because I had been so smart and made that great deal, (laughs) (laughs) we packed our stuff up, put it on the USS United States, and went to London and recorded at Olympic Studios. I was going to say, because the legendary uh, Glenn Johns was involved with the first four records, correct? Yeah, and he he was our engineer, he, he and he was always legendary. But I was going to say, <laughs> did you purposely for the, no like Glenn Johns like shaped Rolling Stone stuff? But I mean, more importantly, like just the way he engineered, especially with the Led Zeppelin's like records. No, no, that's his brother Andy. Wait, so there are two of them? Yeah, there's two. So here's the thing: Glenn Johns was this very rigid British pop guy who had a pop haircut and an alligator skin jacket (laughs) and a briefcase and drove an XKE and come on lads, here we go. He was like Dave Seville. And he he had come up as an engineer in the British, the London pop scene, pop music. So they made good records. We got to Olympic Studios and as soon as we got there, there was a guy named Dick Swetnam who invented a whole lot of great stuff who was like working on the board and we just went... Oh, this is going to be great. They really, really want to make the guitar sound good. We'd record in the States and you'd cut something and it'd sound great and you'd go and listen to it and, you know, it'd sound this big and you'd go, God, what happened? So start working with Glenn. He's our engineer. And I'm just totally at war with him because I like the stack sound. I like the Otis uh, Redding sound. I like that dry, real sound. And he's got everything going through a plate, and it's all kind of in a reverb Mm. chamber. And Mm -hmm. we're just arguing about presence every day. Argue, 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 argue. But, you know, at the same time, he knew how to, like, get guys together and organize. He was up for fast multi-tracking and stuff. So we started learning quickly, you know, how to make records, how to cut tracks, how to really do it. Was this on four or eight track by the time you four children? So oh, man. Children Whoa. of the Future is four. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Now I have a question. Um, a lot of your one of your signature trademarks are well, obviously you're you're an albums based artist instead of just throwing you're a sucker your for electronic music, aren't you? Well, I'm just saying, <laughs> hell yeah, I am. But I, see, you don't understand. Segways. Really I can't wait for this. <laughs> Wait, but what I'm saying is yeah. that uh, a majority of your albums sort of have this cinematic intro to it. You don't, mm-hmm. right? If, and I'm discounting space, even with the uh, uh, the, the Italian record. It, I mean, all of your, most of your records. You start this album with a damn near two minute drone mm-hmm. rock. So, in your mind, I mean, I know that in the late '60s, the whole "Don't bore us, get to the chorus," you know, just 
throw your hit single out front and whatever. Well, that's singles. Albums are different. Right, but I'm just saying that no one's truly thinking in terms of crafting albums. So, well, there there were, you know, like the Beatles were doing it, and and um, um, this stuff comes from like symphonic music and like Bozo goes to the circus. Turn page two, put mm-hmm. the next disc on. <laughs> and, oh, wow. okay. you know, uh, Sparky and uh, radio mystery shows and all of that stuff that I listened to all the time as a kid made making an album cinematic. So it's more like we're going to go someplace. We're going into this special place. We're going to listen to this thing. It's going to be real wide and broad and deep. And there's a, you know, if you're willing to do this, you know, and and that was always my goal. And I was into Stockhausen. I don't know if you've listened to Stockhausen, but uh, um, I went to Germany and met him, man. I went to his studio and saw how he did things and, and, uh, I always loved the idea of creating a big horizon or a space and having it be like a story, like it's a musical journey. It's not just one tune. And at the same time, then you have to pull the one tune out and then that's a whole nother game making single records and that's a whole nother art. So it's two, two, two different approaches. As far as engineering is concerned, you would, re-engineered and mix a song that was going to be a single for specific reasons or? yeah yeah as soon as we could yes and and you know it was always hard i mean like back then you know like if you wanted to change the running order you had to cut all the tunes up and put them on separate reels you know if you had 14 songs or 12 songs you had 12 different reels and you go okay give me song number six i'm gonna make it song number two okay splice it together okay now splice all 14 of them together let's listen to that no that's not right take uh, it apart do fix it this, do it again you know it could take weeks just just doing the the sequencing so i always i just always like that sort of sense of like you're going on a journey and when i when I tell you it's Bozo Goes to the Circus, there is an actual album called Bozo Goes to the Circus, <laughs> and it's kind of like that. All right, y'all. You know what season it is. Tis the season for spring breaking and planning our summer travel. And if you're like me, you're already in your Airbnb app trying to find which spot is right for you. Now, listen, while I'm looking to spend all this money, what I'm not doing is thinking about making money with Airbnb. See, you got to change your mind state. Make the money while you're spending the money. How, you say, Laia, do I make the money? Well, you host at your house. And I know what you're thinking. I mean, my whole house? Uh, Well, no, you don't have to do your whole house. I mean, you could do a room or, you know, do the whole house. So make some money while you're spending some money this summer. I'm trying to tell you, your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Okay. I love Walker Hayes. He's amazing. He's so fun. Such a great entertainer. 
And that's why I'm so excited that JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for the everyday guy. The Walker Hayes for JCPenney collection is an upbeat playlist of instant classics with laid-back appeal and down-home vibes. As a dad of seven kids, he knows exactly what fathers want and need when it comes to their style. This collection reflects his casually cool styles with outdoor-inspired details and versatile colors. Perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man, along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th, just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count. As far as your your approach, I mean, a lot of the earlier stuff was just blues heavy. Yeah. Um, how did you, well, the thing is, the one thing I didn't do, even though I had, okay, so I went through two phases of discovering your music. Naturally having it, of course, you know, my, my dad had like a, a couple records and then later my sister had a few records. And then once hip hop came into play, then I had to buy everything that any, any artist ever made just so I can study their discography. So the thing is, though, I never looked at or even knew of rock critics' disdain for for white blues, <laughs> yeah, right. of which you know, I mean, yeah. like yeah. Rolling Stone notoriously would tear up. Am Led I Zeppelin. flinching? Did I? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, because they were well, you know, you you didn't live this authentic blues life, so why are you approximating it? And I barely so, know what white blues is. I mean, yeah. it sounds weird when you say it like that. What's give me like th- three like. I mean, his Paul whole, yeah. I mean, his whole career. I mean, the the basis of his career st- is taken. But the thing is, is that I'm now realizing the the life that you live from Les Paul entering your life into all the the people that you backed him when you couldn't help but take the torch. And I, when I got to Chicago, and everybody I met in Chicago, I was went. These are just a bunch of white kids who've been listening to records. All right. Okay. I got you now. I just went. Ha! He's got a record contract. Give me the mic, you know, <laughs> because where I grew up. That's... So were they were they, were they amazed that like psh, you listened to him? I play. He was in my living room. Like we're... I was trying to steal Muddy Waters' gig. Oh, so even then, Muddy Waters wasn't like a god. He was still competition, and it's like I told you, Muddy's career was over. Mm-hmm. They had had their hit singles. Okay, they were done. There weren't any gigs for Muddy Waters except in like these nightclubs in Chicago on the south side and the near north side. That was it. They might go to Detroit, maybe. Mm-hmm. They were living at home. Muddy was, I think, Muddy was working as a janitor at Chess mm-hmm. Records when the Rolling Stones came in. Mm-hmm. And, wow. and, and uh, I mean, it's just where it was. There right. were, and that was considered normal. You know, you made three records, you were a star for 18 months, and, you know, the, now it's the hula hoop. Yeah. Somebody else has got... Sounds like hip-hop today. You know, yeah, in <laughs> a minute, everything, everything. everything would change. And so when I got to Chicago, they were talking about this blues scene, and they were talking about uh, Paul Butterfield. Now, Butter had a great band, mm-hmm. and it was... 
was like the little Walter record sound before Mike Bloomfield joined the band and screwed it up, in my opinion. And I know people go crazy when they hear <laughs> I that. Love your brutal honesty. It, it was it was so sweet. It was such a great blues band, you know. But I always felt like these were kids who like sat around and you know did this with records, and and I never felt that way because. I was listening to blues all of my life, and I was around blues musicians all of my life. And then growing up in Texas, I was around them all of my life. And T Bone was the guy I learned to play lead from, so I didn't have, I didn't have that issue of like, I want to be a blues artist, and I'm going to dress like one, and I'm going to talk like one, and I'm right. going to, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to get a guitar just like that. I mean, it wasn't like that. It was just like I want to play music, and this is the music that I'm. I can see in front of me. So that was my difference. But wasn't it technically always going to be a disconnect? Because now I'm, I'm getting what y'all are saying about white blues, black blues, but wasn't it always going to be a disconnect since Muddy Waters and all the black musicians were speaking from a place of pain? And regardless to if you were in their room, the room with them at the time, you would never really feel, right, what they are White people have pain, y'all. I hate to break the news to you. Well, not in, not in America. It's a different, yeah, it's no. a different kind of pain in America. It's so still pain, how does that? Well, yeah. You know, I I think like first of all, so first of all, like I used to hear Muddy Waters and Otis Spann and and that great band play in a room the size of the room we're in right now, mm-hmm. and what I was thinking was. Uh, how great this sounds! Okay. How what a phenom! What you know, adults playing adult music. This is this is jazz. This is this is incredible, and um, you know, um, I think you know the music just gave you empathy. You know, I I never. I mean, I didn't have this. Uh, are you qualified to play black blues? Yeah, I am. You know, let me show you. Let's play some blues. Let's play 44 blues, baby. You know, that kind of stuff. So I just, it was my music. I didn't look at it as I'm learning Muddy Waters music. And so when I was around Muddy and Howling Wolf, I, I started growing up as a musician. And I started uh, seeing somebody who, like, played really great harmonica I could learn some things from that. Or I saw somebody who was doing something, but I didn't see anybody playing guitar like T-Bone Walker and me. I didn't think Buddy Guy was, you know, I thought Buddy Guy and Junior Wells were like pretenders. You know, they were like the junior set. Whoa! They were I, just. Wait, wait. They I just were, heard it too. I was like, so, hey, <laughs> it, took a second, it took a second. For, <laughs> they were they were clowns. They were clowning around. They were just fucking around. And the minute they got their record contract, they stopped playing blues. And, and Junior did a solo album and wanted to be James Brown. So everybody's human here, you Talk know. And shit, so dude. what were your thoughts on the what was the electric album that Money Waters did? Where he electric actually mud. T- or even that where he said Money Waters hates this. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. What were you, what were your feelings on? I I didn't really like that 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 approach. And and um, I was um, asked to do a record with John Lee Hooker, and I I said, well, yes, I'd I'd love to. So I go over to the studio, and there's like, here's what it was like. 
this is the white blues syndrome. There's a white guy producing the record going, okay, John, all right, that's fine. Just sit over there. And John Lee Hooker's like in, a, 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 in, in the corner, you know, like he is, you know, kind of stuttering and sitting there and very shy, man, you know. And outside there's like five white guys with long hair and guitar cases, like, next. And inside there's like a, a good rhythm section. Mm. And they're just... Come next, and they're just going to make this this album. The factory so I, process. Yeah. So I walked in and just said, "This is all wrong." And and I started talking to John, and I said, "Man, let's do this. Let's do that. Let's work on this. Let's get going. You know, let's do this stuff." And uh, I did one tune, and I was gone. You know, when you saw those kind of albums, those those were terrible. So what you really want is the real deal. Now Butterfield is the real deal. Um, you know, there are white musicians who are the real deal. There are black musicians who are the real deal. And, and it shouldn't, you know, it's like I get all the social, you know, differences and the, the, the fight about it. But really and truly, uh, when you get into the room and you just start really playing music, some people play the real stuff. And when that happens, then all that other stuff just falls aside and, and it becomes great. And, um, and the record companies promoted all that bad stuff. That was just some jive A&R guy doing, trying to make money. Okay, so there's a question. Now, I believe you when you're, you know, even though I wasn't there to see these bands in San Francisco or any bands that you've seen, you're like, okay, he's good. He's not good. They're quality. They're all right. But sort of the way that the three of us would know, and I'm pointing to Fonte and, and, and Bill, the three of us would know uh a quality producer all right dilla right right like and we respect his his drum patches all of his you know his, yeah. his whole arrangement and then we'll hear an unnamed imitator that might be more popular and you're like oh man his patches are horrible and right right the sound so what the one thing i could never because the thing is is that because i'm from another generation I saw or at least feel the beauty in the stuff that you might not necessarily see as the real deal. But what what are the the, the qualifications for somebody as far to be as the real deal? Yeah, what like do you look for technique? Do you look for a specific uh, vibrato or tone in their guitar playing? You know, none of that space in their phrasing. None, uh, you know, I, I mean, it's presence. Feeling, it's, yeah. it's right now, right, right here. What you know, uh, you're doing right while you're here, and some people can be just technically totally incompetent and can be great, and other people can be just unbelievably technically competent and just, just bore no you feeling. to tears. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so it's all the idea, you know. It's it's the material and the and the the presence. Well, can I ask, as a blues guitarist? What is what was your opinion of Hendrix as a blues guitarist? Great, absolutely fantastic. Now, at, as an amateur, well, at, okay, it's not me being an amateur, but if I'm coming from an amateur standpoint, and I have this problem with musicians today, they think, okay, I got to overplay everything, yeah, to make up for for technique, and I know that with 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 blues guitar players that. The guys that are often praised are the guys that have the least 
amount of the the least amount of 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 notes virtuosity yeah so my favorite blues guitar player is jimmy vaughn okay jimmy vaughn and eric clapton just had his 70th birthday party at the garden Mm-hmm. And John Mayer was there, and Da 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 was there, and Buddha Poop was there, and Hadi Howe was there, you know. <laughs> and then, and he's got all the guitar players, and Jimmy's there, and everybody's coming out, and they get to do their solo, and they're all playing like Eric with that sort of soprano woman tone. The <laughs> <laughs> what's it called? The woman tone. I love it. Okay. All <laughs> over the place, mm-hmm. right? You know, just fast and fantastic, and like, yeah, you think that was good? Dig this, dig that. And Jimmy came out and hit one note and kind of went splank, and it kind of hit the floor and went blap, and the whole building kind of went oh, oh, mm-hmm. oh, okay, you know. And that's the difference. And some people have got it. And look, there are people who make millions of dollars selling bullshit. We know that, yeah. you know. And and uh, the public's easily fooled, you know. And they go along, and their packages are sold, and things are managed, and weights push put behind certain things. But when it gets down to the real, just unvarnished truth, then somebody who's present, who's really saying something, really playing from the heart, that's the first thing. You who know. who from that era never got their props or their respect that you felt deserved God status? My God, we're never going to get to like <laughs> we're not going to get to fly like an eagle. I know, <laughs> but I'm not mad. I'm not I'd rather I'm have not this either. education. Yeah, this is uh, this is great. Curtis Salgado and the Stilettos. I hate to say this, I've never heard. Yeah, of never heard of Can you say that again? I'm Curtis gonna... Salgado and the Stilettos. Check them out. <laughs> you know, they're a, a phenomenal blues songwriter and singer and great harmonica player and badass band leader. And he's had like four or five bands. He's really funny with his bands. Every, every time he has a new band, I just go, God, Curtis, where did you find that guitar player? Because <laughs> ah, I don't like that guy. I'm firing him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> My rhythm guitar player came from Curtis's band. I was just going, when are you going to fire him? great thank you (laughs) You all right i'm gonna try and skip ahead a little bit because i gotta talk about you okay all right so i want to go to brave new world now i've heard a lot of stories throughout the years about especially with uh my dark hour Hmm. can you confirm or deny that you were witness i wait you guys are smiling already because you know i'm gonna come with now, the rumor was that you were privy or in the presence of the actual breakup of the Beatles. That both, from what I heard, it was that both of you were in Olymp- uh, Olympia Studios or? Yeah, I, I'll tell you what. My, tell me what, what happened. happened. So I, I went to London to mix Brave New World. Okay. And Glenn was going to mix it. And he was working with the Beatles at Olympic Studios. And he said, they're running a couple of days over. So just come and stay at my house and, you know, uh, we'll, we'll go, we'll start in a couple of days. And then he said, let's go over to George's house. And I went, to George's house? <laughs> he says, yeah, George's house. So we go over and go to George's house. And George opens the door and he's just sweet as he can be. And he says, oh, man, children of the future, you know, uh, Sailor. I love those two albums. I was going, 
you do? <laughs> you know, and come right, on you in. That's guys your label means. I, twirl, I twirl the, you know, the prayer wheel and flick at <laughs> the synth. And I'm going, okay. You know, <laughs> yeah. And I was just like that, you know. And so like, you did like the Beatles? I loved the Beatles. Okay. I thought the Beatles were just one of the greatest things that ever happened in the we history of music. We talk so much blues that I just didn't Ooh, think that yeah. pop was even on your Oh, I Radio. love pop music. Okay, okay. <laughs> we're just talking about one I, thing. No, no, I get it. I get it. So, okay. so uh, he says, all right, we're going to go over. They're doing a, a session tonight, so come on with me. So I go into the control room, and John comes in, and Paul comes in, and Linda comes in, and uh, Oko, Yoko comes in. That's <laughs> Stop. Stop. I love Pause. it. Dude, I'm on an album. And and um, they're doing uh, uh, JoJo. Get back. Yeah. Get back. Yeah. And they just walked in, sat down, sang it in twenty minutes, and were done. And then John had to leave and go do a TV show that was like the Johnny Carson show of England. Mm -hmm. And he went and he said something that just turned the whole country over and shook this change out of everybody's pockets or something, you know. And then he came back. And they didn't do any more that night. And um, it was like if the Beatles were in this room, it'd be like there were like 400 tubes with cameras. These would all be cameras. I mean, that's the way it felt. And it'd be like, uh, okay, John's talking to Paul now. Okay, Paul got up. He walked over toward the – they felt like – I didn't know how they did what they did. And they were Super tense. very relaxed in the whole situation, real nice. So the next day they're going to – do a session and uh john and ringo didn't show up george showed up and paul showed up and so we're sitting around and they had set up the gear they had the drums and the amps and stuff and uh glenn says why don't you you and paul go out and jam a little bit and he said okay so i borrowed i've got lennon's epiphone and i'm plugged into some cool little amp and i'm playing this this riff and Paul's playing drums. You know, I don't think about all these things the way a fan would think about them. I, mean, I was yeah. pretty, you know, shy meeting the Beatles. But the next thing I know, I'm doing this recording with Paul, and Paul's a great drummer. You just heard it. Mm -hmm. And I was just going, oh, this guy can. And I'm going, yeah, well, dig this lick. Well, yeah, <laughs> dig. And we're, we're in here doing this now, you know. And I'm not thinking about it. And, um, so we start building a song, and we're building the song, and Paul comes back out and plays the bass. I did the second guitar, and he says, I got a pedal steel in the other room you want to play. And I said, I've always wanted to play it. Can you, know, you just press this? And, and so put that on. And then we're doing the background vocals, doing the My Dark Hour part. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And while we're doing that, the session gets stopped and a newspaper article is brought in that um, Brian Epstein's mother, Brian had died, their manager, had just sold the Beatles publishing to Northern Songs for I think it was 4.9 million pounds. And that's when they found out. That their so publishing had been sold. The and ATV Northern Song sale happened that moment? 
Yeah, I mean, it came in, it was announced in NME, New Music Express. Yeah. And, hey, look at this. And, and so we're kind of reading it. And I'm sitting there going, fuck, you don't own your own publishing? Yeah, you do. And then we start talking about Alan Klein. And uh, John wants to sign with Alan Klein. And Paul doesn't. I'm going, you don't want to sign with Alan Klein. Alan Klein will steal all your publishing. No, those guys are gangsters. You don't want, you're right. Don't do that. And I'm sitting here going, I can't believe yeah. that I'm sitting here talking to like somebody that one of the few people in my life that I really, really am just in awe of as a talent. And I'm, trying, I'm going, I'm better off than Paul. I own my own stuff. I can't believe this, you know? And so there was poison between Linda and Yoko. And I remember the, the one thing that Yoko did that, that really blew my mind was they were mixing get back and she was on the phone and she said, Hey, could you turn that down? I'm on the phone. <laughs> and, 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 and that's what I say every time I listen to her music. And, and, <laughs> and I was like hey. a fly in the room. Like I didn't want to move anything. You know, I was just like, well, they were doing it, and they go, "What do you think about that, Steve?" It's really great. You know, I mean, I, that's the way I felt while they were doing it. I really wasn't relaxed yet. I hadn't played any music with them or done anything. You know, the next day was a whole different deal, and that wasn't the day they broke up. But I saw the stuff that was going on, and you know, it was just like Boz and I had this kind of thing. Like Boz wanted to go sign a quick deal with some guy. Fuck, to, I forgot we, to, we to talk Boz about Boz Kags. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm so unprofessional. He mentioned him briefly. You know, Boz was going, oh, we need this guy, you know, Lenny's going to be our manager or whatever it was. And I was going, Boz, you're nuts. We can't let, you know, we have to keep control of our business. No. Yeah. No, 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 no. And there was a lot of that. You know, it's like, hey, kid, I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to, you know, the whole deal. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and, uh, Lennon just, it seemed to me like he just wanted somebody to take care of this stuff and have it stop driving him nuts. And Paul was kind of going like, I want to own my own publishing. I want to own my own stuff. We need a good manager. We got to be smart. This isn't going to work. And that was, you know, when it was going on. But they hadn't broken up yet. So I wasn't there the minute they broke up. But I saw, so the, the saw what the key elements were, yeah. All right, y'all. You know what season it is. Tis the season for spring breaking and planning our summer travel. And if you're like me, you're already in your Airbnb app trying to find which spot is right for you. Now, listen, while I'm looking to spend all this money, what I'm not doing is thinking about making money with Airbnb. See, you got to change your mind state. Make the money while you're spending the money. How, you say, Laia, do I make the money? Well, you host at your house. And I know what you're thinking. I mean, my whole house? Uh, well, no, you don't have to do your whole house. I mean, you could do a room or, you know, do the whole house. So make some money while you're spending some money this summer. I'm trying to tell you, your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Okay. I love Walker Hayes. He's amazing. He's so fun. Such a great entertainer. 
And that's why I'm so excited that JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for the everyday guy. The Walker Hayes for JCPenney collection is an upbeat playlist of instant classics with laid-back appeal and down-home vibes. As a dad of seven kids, he knows exactly what fathers want and need when it comes to their style. This collection reflects his casually cool styles with outdoor-inspired details and versatile colors. Perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man, along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th, just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count. Steve, did you ever have a manager? Never. Yeah, I, I've had a couple uh, people manage me, and um, my first manager got me busted when I was in London, <laughs> so I fired him. And uh, uh, yeah, he had a heart-shaped Valentine with a pound of weed sent to him. Oh, didn't man. tell anybody it didn't arrive, and he left town. Oh, so got to go back to the let states, you with it. right? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's just stuff like that, man. <laughs> you know, I have never, um, I had a, uh, I got a lot of help from a, a guy in Chicago named Frank Freed, who is, was a good man who helped manage me for a while, did get part of my publishing, but sold it back to me for 9,000 bucks, which is the last 9,000 bucks I ever had. Yeah, I mean, I had at the moment. <laughs> But uh, after that, I never could find anybody who was smart enough to be my manager. And by that, I meant they didn't know which lawyers to use. They didn't know what kind of insurance to get. They were full of shit. They were hanging out in some office. They thought it was a party. They weren't. They didn't have the kind of connections I wanted. And I was always scared of guys like Irving Azoff. You know, they, I always mm-hmm. thought Irving would skin me. Mm-hmm. You know, he's turned out to be one of the best guys there is for artists. But... You know, but during uh, that time period, it was so mafia infused that you know you could make. Well, everything was mafia or record company, and and the 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 managers. I mean, a manager was a guy who was like in Los Angeles going, "Hey, what what do you mean the hotel's bad? The PA doesn't work. Listen, I got to talk to Madonna. Right, Click. right. <laughs> you know, you know. I mean, they they were just playing everybody, and there wasn't very much respect for artists, and I just didn't. In my run, I didn't run into the right people. I never ran into somebody who was like going to be doing as much as I was doing and earning their equal share of what what it was. Was Shep around at that time? No, Shep, Shep Gordon. Gordon. Yeah, uh, yeah he has an answer. Yeah, Shep, okay. Shep, Shep was gone, and, and I love Shep. You know, and and he's you know you my guy. You, you Shep think was about one of the Shep ones that was, was the drug dealer. Uh, right, <laughs> he said that. No, Shep said that. So he said and it. and you know I didn't want a drug dealer right. or a, a kid to be my manager. I wanted. I I realized that, that I needed more than that. You know, and um, it's taken me a lifetime to to figure out what a what it really takes. You know, I mean, I've been doing this now for a long, long, long time about you know sixty sixty five years, <laughs> and uh, uh, it's it's a it's been a long life, and I've I've learned a lot about business, and there are very few managers. Wow. You know, people yeah. who can really actually manage you through the stages of a career and they always want to own you forever. Yeah. 
Yeah. So, so do you want to give any advice to anybody that's listening on what to look for in a manager? Like, <laughs> <laughs> you still looking though, right? I mean, yeah. Like, <laughs> um, or, or maybe like things for them to to you know signs for them to red look flags. out for. Yeah, red flags. Honesty in organization, really. Well, it's... yeah, you'd be, uh, yeah, an organization that's honest. You know, honesty is the, the is really important, and of course, knowledge too. But uh, it's really, really, really a, a difficult thing, and and you have to. Uh, decide you you know when people make these decisions they don't even know what they're getting into they don't even know what their lives are going to be you know it's the only place in the world where you know somebody comes up to you and go when you're 18 or 20 years old and goes i'm going to manage you and i'm going to own part of this for the rest of your life and i'll probably sell it and make more money off of it than you will later you know that's kind of what management is really looking to do, is you know. Is that honest, though? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, okay, I guess we should also mention at least Space Cowboy on the record. Did you plan on that being a main single? Because I always wanted to know why it was at the end of Side 2, because I would normally think that, okay, your your first single or your big single should at least be in the first three songs. I hated Space Cowboy. I didn't really? want to put it on the record. So was it and, an accidental hit? Uh, yeah, it was one of those kind of things. Like, I have had, uh, I've written myself out of what I call the the rock ghetto, <laughs> right? <laughs> you know, uh, several times by luck, and and um, Space Cow was a poorly executed executed tune, uh, poorly written. Done in fifteen seconds, or was it? And and <laughs> but the idea was really really great, and we knocked it out without any respect, and we didn't take like when I was talking to to Paul about writing to McCartney, I was going, man, how did you what what about all that? And he said, oh, he said, God, we did those things so fast. I wish I had taken more time with some of these songs, and that was kind of like. Which one? The long winding road was that too short, or <laughs> which one was it that wasn't didn't meet your standards? You know, but when you look back and you see stuff like that, like you know, Space Cow is just a terrible track, and that's why it's stuck on the end. And everybody's going, "Are you crazy? You well, gotta put it on." You the still maintain that to this day? No, it's a great song. Now I completely redone it. <laughs> <laughs> We're no, killing but, it now. <laughs> but you're, when you hear the original, you're just like, "Meh." Still, uh, I I get I sweat and blush. Wow, Come on, dude. I mean, but you see how I effective sweat it. and blush. I mean, it's on the Sim <laughs> there's a Simpsons episode about it. So I, I know. you're at least like <laughs> okay, maybe maybe I, I was wrong you know, about it. You know, here's the thing. Like, I've never met any artist who has any concept of who they are. It was so obvious Chuck Berry didn't have a clue who he was. You know, didn't know who Chuck Berry was. You know, right. I don't know who Steve Miller is. I'm inside of Steve Miller trying to think this stuff up and do it. So when somebody comes up and goes, oh, man, Steve, Space Cowboy, you know, the Steve in me goes, God, that was the lamest track we ever cut. I can't believe it sounds terrible. It's an awful mix. Guitar solo is like, why did I have that effect on that guitar? Ugh, ah. You know, that's me. You're that's respect. the way I'm looking at it. And somebody else is going, God, man, Space Cowboy saved my life. <laughs> you know, and, and, and you have to, you know, it's really hard to just shut up and go, thanks. 
<laughs> and thank you, you know. So it's really hard to know who you are to other people. I have a hard time with that. You, you said know? it only take 15 minutes in it, one take? Yeah. Well, in contrast, you said in an interview once that I think the Joker took three weeks to make. Oh, no, that's the whole album. Okay, uh, not just... Album. No, the the Joker album... Took, I thought you meant... The, okay, I thought the song nah, took... The Joker was really quick. That was like 17 days for the whole thing. Oh, man. Okay, so... Yeah. And thanks that, for putting that song in Guitar Hero. My kids love that song. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, God bless it. You know, I, I love the fact that little kids love my music and they all sing it and they all like it and they can sing the parts. You know, that's, that's as good as it gets. Not that I think... Well, I don't know if you... See, I like to think that everything that you've done on your records had some sort of scientific, purposeful meaning to it. Oh, yeah. And, and I know you're going to be like, Psh, I don't know what I was thinking. Mm. Okay, on the on the Joker album, right at the beginning of Come to My Kitchen, I mean, you have this monster groove. It, it's only for like 18 seconds, but it feels like you're going to do a live concert, and this monster groove starts, and then it just fades away, and then you go into Come to My Kitchen. Why and where is that group? Because <laughs> that group was kind of a sound check. Yeah, but and and uh, and and um, it, 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 I still have all of it, and it was, it was a great groove. And and I wanted, but you never I wanted, reissued it. That's... I want, I wanted to, you know, I wanted to create this environment, and I wanted that. It was, I knew it was such a great piece of music. I wanted to put it on the record, but I didn't know more what to do with it, and. And so we mixed it with the Kitchen Blues, which was this live performance. Right. And it just like Was it us this, like walking into the concert hall as the it's song like, was ending? It's kinda the, like to me it's always like the spaceship lands, you know. It's ah. like there's a lot of that like I used, I was always playing the echoplex of you know, into another thing, you know. And and um I j I don't know. You know why I didn't take that and write write a, a great piece of music. You know I was always very serious about making my albums and trying to say, uh, say entertain people, say good things, kind of educate people, have it be a little bit more than maybe what they were thinking they were going to get. Mm -hmm. And um, so I was always you know serious about it. It wasn't just like oh I don't know what I was doing, but sometimes. I didn't know what I was doing, like on Space Cowboy. I thought it was a great idea. I just, you know, we made five albums, I think, in 18 months. And that was the third one or something, you know. It was like we were really moving fast. It, when you're making these records, do you, I mean, they also have a, a I know it's going to be weird maybe for you to say this. I don't know if anyone's ever described it to you before. But, I mean, I consider these hip-hop seeds hip-hop records because there's some of them are so groove based and the way that you mix them it's it's like r&b records even with with like i mean i'm not even talking about like take the money and run or whatever that had breakbeats at the top of them but just in general like were you mindful of soul grooves and maybe that somewhere out there there's a black audience that would embrace you as well or that sort of thing Stop. We had a black audience. We had okay. a, a big black audience. <laughs> I did not know this. <laughs> and everywhere we played, it was really a, a, a mixed audience, and we were a mixed band. And uh, so, you know, Gerald Johnson, 
is one of the greatest bass players yeah. in the whole fucking planet. Mm -hmm. You know, he's great. And uh, we had, uh, you know, before the sheds, it was all integrated. And as soon as the sheds were built and they moved out to the suburbs, like all of a sudden I was just playing to an all white kind of right. shed. What's like that? a man music. Well, see, our shed is actually in the inner city. Actually, our shed's in the hood. Oh, man I music center. Seen. Okay, when all right, when it's half <laughs> and, covered. And, and, and in Philly, man music center is right in the hood. Yeah, in I, the plateau where I, everybody goes. I played one, one of the one, you know yeah. I played there many times yeah. and and had one of the most corrupt gigs of my life was done there. Where at the man or at the at the, the man oh. music center? Was, was the name Larry Maggot brought into play? Or yes, it was. Hello, Philadelphia. Okay, Larry Megan stories. <laughs> he used to manage my dad, so go ahead. So, so oh, that explains everything. Well, I was reading your book, so I was like, yeah. So, all right, so Larry Megan, like a, a, a friend of mine who had started off as an equipment manager for Santana, Herbie Herbert, put together, created, and thought up the band Journey. He thought up the poster art. He thought up the T-shirt business. He's the guy who created the T-shirt business now. And he picked the people in Journey, and he said, we're going to have a rock band, and we're going to do this. Oh, wow. And he was unbelievably Damn. successful. And um, he uh, told me this story about Larry. So so they played at Philly at the, the football stadium. Mm-hmm. And, and got paid on a sold-out show, 56,000 people or something like that. And a couple of weeks later, they get a satellite photo from a friend of theirs in the Air Force that goes, congratulations, you guys had 78,242 people at your show. Mm. And he said, can you do that from a satellite? He said, oh, yeah, right to the, you know, there it is. <laughs> so there's a huge lawsuit brought against Larry Maggot, who was like skimming like by 25,000 people. Mm -hmm. You know, everything was a skim, right? So stealing, skimming, stealing, skimming off everybody. So Paul McCartney suing him, the Grateful Dead suing him, Journey suing him, somebody else is suing him, somebody yeah, else is suing him. him. Yeah, yeah. they sue him. <laughs> a vice president from the company has to go to jail for 18 months. And then Paul started an article saying, so Larry, how's business been? He says, well, ticket sales are great. <laughs> has affected ticket sales at all. So that's a, so I'm playing there. And I, I go do this, I, I get there, and the building manager is not there. The fire commissioner guy is like on vacation. Mm -hmm. And those 300-pound union guys mm -hmm. in Philly yeah. who are all like, hey, hey yo, who away. Yeah, yeah, you know. And I, use. I got into it with those guys. No, you really didn't. Bad. Dude, it's Philly. Yeah, I did. I went in, they were all eating chicken, and I said, look at you guys. I couldn't believe I did it. While I was talking, I was going, what am I doing? What you know? are you? They were like sitting there, you know, eating half chickens, and nothing was set up. And they were trying to charge us an extra $10,000 to set up our second laser screen. And, you know, they were just jerking us around and everything. And I go out, and I look at outside, and I go, holy shit this place is so oversold. This is the most dangerous house I've ever been in in my life. There was not space for one more person. There was, there were no aisles or nothing. And I just had to like, you know, the show was like very delicate. I didn't want to get anybody too excited or anything. 
And then the rear fence was broken down and 3,000 people more came in. Mm. And then later we found out that the union had a van that they were uh, they were selling cocaine in the audience. <laughs> Wait, what? Wow. The union. The, the union guys that worked there were selling coke in the audience and they were reselling yeah. the tickets. Just oh, when you yeah. think you know and a city. Philly. Yeah. Thank you, Philly. And so I, I had a seizure, you know, and no. then... And then, you know, we get in the cars, and that's the end of the East Coast, and we're going to Denver. And, you know, three days later, we're playing in Denver. We fly, the stuff's all being driven, and we, we get to Denver, and we get out to Red Rocks, and the guys go, what did you guys do in Philly, man? You know, because the union had called them. You know, I thought our tires were going to be slashed, our equipment stolen. But that that was always Philly, you know. It was a very... <laughs> Oh, and so right. you know when when people ask me about business and you ask me about management i've been dealing all my life with mafia mm -hmm. uh illegal police uh um corrupt business people uh, dishonest record companies uh the 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 union designed to protect me never protected any of my interests and and abused me and uh you know the ass caps of the world have. You know I'm always in the wrong program when I mm -hmm. when my got my hit. Boy, too bad. You know you would have made more if. But oh, BMI shell yeah. game. Yeah. You know all of that kind of stuff. So my whole business experience has been dealing with people who are dishonest, who are trying to steal from me and trying to do me harm. You know so. That's that's what that's the kind of manager you need is you need the space cowboy man you need the champion of justice. <laughs> Sounds like we need a Stephen Miller book though more than the Dan Grossman book on publishing. Uh, you, you know, know what I mean? Like I, I think I think you know uh, the the book's been written. You know what the problem I found was what people would say. You know, like, well, that's an acceptable contract that they would have. You know, fifty percent of your publishing. That's yeah. that's the the industry standard, and I just from my 12-year-old days of getting paid for what I did and what I thought was mine, I would just say, well, no. <laughs> and that's still real? You think that's realistic in 2017? You think that, you know, some courage-filled artist can go in the office and be like, I want it all? Yeah. Well, but it's that, so different now because... Well, you have to, here's, here's the thing, you know, like, here, here's the thing. You can only do that when the situation's right. So when I told you I had a feeding frenzy, I thought you understood yeah. what a feeding frenzy yeah. is. Yeah, yeah that's true. feeding frenzies. You know, when I when I told you that in 1966 there was this giant awakening in San Francisco, I'm not talking about some little scene in a club. I'm talking about yeah, the world, a movement, a yeah. thing popped out. You know, it was like whoa. Whoa, there's a whole different way this can all work. Yeah. So these things are like, you know, situations, timing, all that kind of stuff. You're a unicorn in a way, what the kids call, like to call it these days. Well, you know, if you want to get, if you want it so bad, you'll do anything. That's Man, listen. Then, 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 you know, I can get all your publishing and your shoes and your watch and your ring and your wallet, you know, in 30 minutes. Well, that's I mean, now with 360, 360 deals. 360 deals, yeah. 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 Uh, and all of that because they know it and the kids don't know it and you know kids always want to you know you just want to do it but you have to say no you have to learn you have to how realize to, the leverage is in your favor if you if you it, have it even even if it isn't you have to say no for a while you know like I never did anything I didn't want to do wow. and I had people trying to get me to do stuff 
you know, hey, man, go do this thing for this DJ for free, and he'll do that and go, fuck you, man. You know, there's going to be 4,000 people there. Sure you want me to come. I always had that attitude, you know, that you got to pay me if you want me to put the amp in the car and drive there and set it up and plug yeah, it in, yeah. man. It's, it's work. It's work. <laughs> okay, so I have a question. In, in, in retrospect, was there one historical event or one collaboration or even something as minuscule as a soundtrack song. One slight misstep that you made that you regret not doing, like did you get an offer for Woodstock, but you're like, they ain't paying for me gas, nope. Or <laughs> <laughs> Woodstock, I was calling uh, uh, my Frank Fried in Chicago. The guy was helping me out. This time. Frank, we got to play Woodstock. We got to see. Yeah, you don't want to play there. It's going to be many. It's going to be many. I say, yeah, it's already booked. You don't want to be. Frank, we got to come on. Come on. Nah, you don't want to, you know. I'll right, so talk that, you out of it. Okay. That, that was one. Uh, Monterey Pop Festival was, uh, you know, we were talking about how the San Francisco guys really considered the LA guys gangsters and criminals, right. which they were. And we were right to have that. But the other day I was reading about the Monterey Pop Festival and somebody was talking about how my manager in typical San Francisco fashion talked my talked us out of being in the film. You know, I was like, we're not going to let you guys film us. We're not going to do that. You did it and you're not on film? Yeah, right. Oh, and, no. Wait, but yeah. Janice is saying, your, your wife is saying something. However, I don't know if you, oh, you, Janice, <laughs> there we go. Janice <laughs> just found... <laughs> 12 minutes of us that oh, wow. that Penny yeah, Baker geez. himself shot anyway, in spite of which shows you, right? They're absolutely, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, yeah. And, and you know, Bill Graham was the same way. I mean, he, he illegally videotaped and recorded every show I ever did there. Oh, they're putting it out. Oh, there you said she said that Janice said they're putting it out. Oh, yeah. Well, we've called them up and said, hey, you remember what we said? We didn't mean that. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Janice. I appreciate it. 67 or whatever it was. Come on, you know. <laughs> All right, y'all. You know what season it is. Tis the season for spring breaking and planning our summer travel. And if you're like me, you're already in your Airbnb app trying to find which spot is right for you. Now, listen, while I'm looking to spend all this money, what I'm not doing is thinking about making money with Airbnb. See, you got to change your mind state. Make the money while you're spending the money. How, you say, Laia, do I make the money? Well, you host at your house. And I know what you're thinking. I mean, my whole house? Uh, Well, no, you don't have to do your whole house. I mean, you could do a room or, you know, do the whole house. So make some money while you're spending some money this summer. I'm trying to tell you, your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Okay. I love Walker Hayes. He's amazing. He's so fun. Such a great entertainer. And that's why I'm so excited that JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for the everyday guy. The Walker Hayes for JCPenney collection is an upbeat playlist of instant classics with laid-back appeal 
and down-home vibes. As a dad of seven kids, he knows exactly what fathers want and need when it comes to their style. This collection reflects his casually cool styles with outdoor-inspired details and versatile colors. Perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man, along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th, just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count. I can't believe this, but we're finally getting to 1976. I know you guys are like, well, you get to fly like an eagle already. I promise you, I'll end it right now. <laughs> All right. I just, I just had to get to fly like, wait, I'm here now. Now I'm so overwhelmed. I don't know what to ask about it. Fly Like an Eagle was um, a song that was developed over two, three years. And our gigs used to be, we'd, we'd like, you know, go come to Detroit and play the Grandy Ballroom or be in Boston at the Tea Party or be, you know, wherever it was. And um, a lot of what we did was like we'd play a couple hours, two, three hours, and we'd have a mirror ball. And, you know, a mirror ball is a great thing. Man. You know, it's like <laughs> a dark room. It wasn't like a big show spotlights and all that shit. And there'd be some, you know, kind of oily kind of stuff going on behind you. The mirror ball would be on. And mm-hmm. Everything would be kind of cool. And we'd just start jamming. And so Fly Like an Eagle was a jam, and it was a long piece back in those days. It, it, a show wasn't something where you had to come out and do like, you know, nine songs in 45 minutes, like bang, 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 thank you very much. You know, it was like a whole evening, and it was kind of like we're just tipping the gan and everybody's going to relax, you know. It's like music tonight. And so that song was developed, started like that, and... Um, that riff, you know, My Dark Hour didn't feel like, you know, I, get, I like gave him the song before it was really finished and we did it in seven hours and it was done and, and I wasn't done with that that idea at all. So, yeah. Come back to it. Because there was a slow, I believe on Midnight Special in 73, mm-hmm. you did a version of Fly Like an Eagle that's half, the, the, the halftime, the, the, the yeah. slower version of it. Mm-hmm. So it's always been your repertoire. Yeah, like for me personally, like, and this is this is <laughs> the whole reason why you're here is the next question. <laughs> I know where this is going. I know. Wait, you 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 gotta understand. All right, so my 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 first day of school back in '76, um, which is weird because because my dad had both Silt Degrees and Fly Like an Eagle eight track in the car and it was far a far drive from school so like my memory of of hearing fly like an eagle was on my dad's eight track player in the car and also with with boss gags record which you know it's kind of weird that you two appeared together we didn't know that back then but you know here in the space intro which steve will probably want to kill me because any space intro is just my go-to reference point for anything that in my head that's like slow motion or needs atmosphere and whatever, like that's my my go to reference for any keyboard play we ever had. Steve, any, give, any, so while any. I was listening to one of your records today before I came Uh-oh. over, Uh-oh. I think I understood that. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's just, I kind of went like, we could. Do, this is the same stuff. We're just yeah. It just it it, it made when I was a kid, it made me feel like I could fly. 
Yeah. Like an and, eagle? Yeah. <laughs> there you no, go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm so glad you... Try the Calamari. Uh, that's, that's great because that's exactly what the way it made me feel when I was playing it and discovering it and doing it. And it was so magical to do that, you know? Uh, and um, uh, I, I, uh, I had this, this thought, you know, when, uh, before I came over today because I was listening to some things and I kind of went, yeah, this is, this is like the, the same kind of work. Like this is, these are these people and I mean, this is like what I'm doing. This is where, where I am when I'm in the studio, when I'm laying back. And I kept thinking like of Macho City. Oh. <laughs> Dude, well, I, I want to talk about Macho City because it's freaking hip hop. Yeah. Like when when you're creating Macho City and the, 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 the political rap that comes with it, it's like a year before the message. Yeah. What, what were you thinking? Like were you, as far as like, okay, well, Hip hop is is I was going thinking, to be a thing because hip hop hip hop really wasn't a thing. Here's what you got to understand: but I wasn't thinking about hip hop at all. I was just doing something. <laughs> so you didn't hear any Grandmaster Flash records? Like, oh, we could. No, uh, I, I, I was believe you too because <laughs> you know I was just doing what I do, and um, that's um, was a new way. It has a sort of a new. Like when New Wave came, like were you aboard it? Because I felt like if you didn't do Macho City, probably Talking Heads could have attempted to do it. I'm yeah, trying to figure yeah, like who yeah, were your peers in that moment that the, you could... I didn't have any peers because what 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 had happened was I had um, uh, been sort of I, I had. I had done Abercadabra. I'd played these shows. I'd been playing football stadiums. Uh, American Record Company said, Abercadabra sucks. We're not going to do anything with it. And Sorry. And I said, okay, well, I'm canceling my United States tour. I'm going to Europe then because I had a different deal with Phonogram from Capital. I went to Europe and it was number one all over Europe and the United States. So it was on Mercury play. in Europe, but not... It was... Uh, Phonogram, yeah. Phonogram, Mercury, Mercury, Mercury yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, so it was number one everywhere, and and I came back. I did a whole t big tour of Europe, and came back to the states. And now it was like coming up the charts, and then it finally went to number one. And I got back, and the sheds had just opened. It's 1983, I think, mm -hmm. and I had booked 11 of them. And I'd been playing football stadiums. I got back. It's 1983, and there were like 3,000 people in each at each gig. And it was a whole new place and a whole new thing. And I was just kind of going like, God, my business, this it? Okay, now I'm at the end, man. All right, I sold them, you know, 20 million albums, and I played football stadiums, and I did all this stuff. But I ain't going to come back and play in places that are like a quarter full. And so, and at the same time, all the 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 press stuff like uh, i think at the same time um uh, i think macho city the la times called it unmitigated slop and said that the capital records should be embarrassed for releasing my work as an artist damn and then they ran it again at new year's you know you know it's like that it was it really hurt so i uh, so i just kind of went like okay that's it i'm I'm still went gold i'm i'm out of here so i didn't tour for 6 years 
I Wait just, a minute, you let that hamper you? No, no. Yeah, that that was the final straw. But I had I had but, just been on the road from 1965 okay, to 1983, it. and I, I just just uh, I mean I was really tired of the whole thing. And I didn't have any, a manager, and I didn't have any plan. I just, you know, whatever happened, happened, and I worked where and I worked it to my advantage as much as I could, and I was tired. I needed a break. So were you aware that, like, the Amazing Mojo, not Mojo. Electrifying Nation, Mojo. Yeah, Electrifying. Like, they were playing that on black radio up in Detroit, like, in heavy rotation. Like, that song had legs on it. No, see, I, you know, like... Um, no, I was living in a <laughs> farm in Oregon. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good answer. That's a good <laughs> you know, answer. It was good. I'd, and, you know, uh, the, that's, that's the world I want to live in where everybody, where all cultures are intertwined and people are all listening to each other and the audience is diverse and the music is diverse. And, you know, in an odd sense, that's kind of what was cool about San Francisco is that it was diverse. You know, on Monday night, it might be Johnny Cash. And on Tuesday night, it might be the Modern Jazz Quartet. And on Wednesday night, it'd be, you know, Quicksilver Messenger Service. And on Thursday night, it'd be Muddy Waters, you know. And it, it was very diverse. Or Roland Kirk or, mm -hmm. you know, Charles Lloyd. Or a lot of people were just coming through all the time. That's the world I I want to live in and play in and breed in and, you know, be in. That's that's the way I feel. Okay, you know, like when someone tells a joke and then you get the punchline like five years later. Yeah. Okay, We're, that just happened to me. So I'm, <laughs> I hate going back to the Fillmore, but you said Ro Rashawn Roland Kirk. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Now we used to jam all the time. This is what I got to know. With these jazz pairings coming to the Fillmore, were they truly open or did it just look good on the poster? Like looking on the poster, it's like. You know, uh, uh, Eric Clapton Cream, and uh, I'm using hypothetical. John Coltrane. In essence, did it really work that night, or were there people that were just like, all right, let me know when the sunshine of your love guy comes on and go outside <laughs> for a smoke? No, no, no. It, it was... Like, were they truly open it, to... You don't understand, man. It was in a, a, the whole building was different it wasn't like when you go to work and tickets are sold and managers are there and mm -hmm. pop stars are there and big video screens are on and people are in control and people are being wound up to be hysterical and shit <laughs> like that that's rolling stones english shit this was like warm and real and great i used to go see roland kirk on sunday afternoon he'd play a set sunday afternoon and play another set sunday night or uh and you were just open to and, whatever he... And you know who you remind me of? Don't say it. The drummer in <laughs> Clifton Chenier's oh, band. Oh, oh, I thought you were going to say Buddy Miles. I was like, no more Buddy Miles, please. <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> Buddy, Buddy, I know Buddy real, really, really well. I was there the day Buddy came to town. He came to my house. I definitely wanted to steal him from Mike Bloomfield right away and put a band together with him because he was really cool. He went on a long, bad trip and had a, you know, a lot of bad things happen to him. But I don't know if if you know much about Clifton Chenier. I but don't. It's Cajun blues. Okay. Uh, accordion blues. Uh, Zydeco. See yeah, right Zydeco, now. Yeah. yeah. And and the drummer sits in the middle of the stage with his drums like at this level, and it's like he's got a bat, and he's just going, boom, bam, boom, bam. and 
things are happening and the little bass player and the guitar player doing little steps and bopping up to the side and off to this side and Clifton Chenier's in the middle and there's a guy on his knees playing his chest, you know, mm-hmm. playing the playing thing the, with the spoons the and stuff. Yeah. And some of the greatest music, man, funky, funky, funky stuff. That stuff was going on all the time and everybody was high, the lights, the whole thing. It was like, not like show business. It was a different, it was like church, man. A musical church is what it ended up being. That was being manipulated by certain groups and certain people. But in spite of the Bill Grahams of the world, you know, Mm -hmm. because while all this was going on, Bill Graham was stealing from everybody, Mm. you know, Stealing from the group, stealing from the people, overselling the stuff, doing lying about the books, mm-hmm. bull- bullshitting everybody, you know. But in spite of all of that, there was this really great, a pure heart and soul changing musical scene going on. So with the song, with the song, the Joker, you had this global hit, basically, right? And that was humongo, humongous. Um, so, and then, uh, did you feel? Did something click at that point where you said, okay, now I, I, I understand what's going to truly help me translate to the pop charts and have mega hits and, and then sort of start pumping out? The, like once you had said, okay, wow, I found a unique sound here. It was, it was different than that. I, when I left town, The Joker was my last album at Capitol Records. Nobody was talking to me about renewing my contract. It was the first album where I kicked all the producers and everybody. I was the first record I produced myself with just by myself. Man. The Joker was. Yeah. Okay. And I brought my band in for two days and cut all the tracks and sent them home and then spent 15 days doing the vocal overdubs and all the stuff and mixing it and putting it together. And I had this little playback for the record company. And some kid at the playback meeting said, that Joker, I like that. I think, I think that could be a hit single. And I turned to him and I said... I don't care about hit singles anymore, you know, because I couldn't get played on AM radio. Mm-hmm. Every single I put, I mean, just could not do it. So I said, here's an album. Here's a list. I'm going to go play 60 cities in the next 90 days. Just have some records in the towns where I'm playing this time, okay? Thank <laughs> you very much. <laughs> Goodbye. And... I got back from that tour 90 days later and there was a check in my mailbox for $387,000 in the junk mail. Junk mail. I kind of went, holy sh- yow. <laughs> and, and I called up my agent and said, I'm taking the next year off. <laughs> hey. Wait and a minute, you said, didn't want to strike while the iron was hot? No. Well, I went, two things happened. I went to the studio to Capitol to try and do something, and I was exhausted. I was so burned out, man. I just said, I can't, I haven't written anything. I can't think of anything. I'm wasting money here. Let's stop. So we stopped for a couple of weeks. Then I went up to Seattle, and I booked a, a, st- a studio up there, flew the band up. The band got there and quit. They flew to Seattle and quit in mass, right? Man. And and I said, and and Gerald was there, and Gerald was you know giving me all this stuff, and I said, Gerald, 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 listen, man, we're really tired. Don't burn any bridges. We may want to work together again. <laughs> don't, don't say it now, man. So they all quit, and uh, I I was just sitting there, kind of going like, yeah, we're we're done. We had we had been struggling for so long, for so hard. Trying to get this done, and um, 
so I took, I was going to take a year off and I took 18 months off. And what it did was it allowed me to sit down and think. And I basically lived alone by myself for 18 months. And about eight months into it, I called up uh, Lonnie and, and Gary, Gary Malibur, drummer, Lonnie Turner, bass player, took them into the studio in San Francisco, cut 20 two tracks in 11 days, sent them home, and then I just went back to my house and engineered everything and just did all the vocals and the guitar parts over and over and over and over and over and just worked on this thing that felt like a masterpiece. And I just kept working on it, and I'd erase it all, and I'd do it again. I'd erase it all, and I'd do it again. And I had an eight-track tape recorder, and there were two tracks with the stereo mix, one track had a sync tone so they gave me five open tracks and so I did everything that way I had five open tracks and when I got it all finished I basically had done everything that I had set out to do McCartney had, the thing with the Beatles in 69 was mm -hmm. I went there and I and when I saw what they had in the can I just went oh my god they've got 46 songs in the can they're God, they're four albums ahead. Mm -hmm. yeah. They're ahead. That's how they do this timing, you know. That's how it is. It's not like the boys are trying to write something, they'll be back in 18 months, you right. know. They were way ahead, and Paul, you know, told me about that, and so I went, I got to get two albums ahead. So I had all these singles, and I was looking at them, and I knew what FM radio needed. I wasn't thinking about AM radio. I, I had to help build FM radio. So you purposely did that? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. I mean, I was making an album for, you know, AM radio wouldn't touch me with a 10-foot pole. You know, they did with the Joker, but, you know, and they really did. I mean, when I came back from that tour, the Joker was, I remember driving to do a gig in Oakland and putting the radio and just going through to see if, where, where it was on. And it was on four of the five top 40 stations in San Francisco, and I was pissed off because it wasn't on the fifth, on the fifth one. one. <laughs> you know, there's no, there's no joy in any of this. You know, you never Steve. stop and go, isn't this great? It was like, Argh. you know, but so I knew that I was writing something really great for FM radio, that I was writing something great for radio itself, that this was how radio needed to sound that this was where it needed to go was the material they needed and my you know songwriting and my music was going on at the same time and my understanding of how to make records had grown quite a bit and i worked on it and worked on it and worked on it and worked on it when i was finished i took it myself took the the tape and i had two slides the cover and the back of fly like an eagle and i took it to the president and i said this is going to sell 4 million copies Oh. And he went, <laughs> he said, well, let's go down and see the art department. And so we went down and talked to, to John Vandersvelt, and he did the cover just like that and put it out. Wow. And we ended up, like, uh, dominating AM radio and FM radio at its height. Mm -hmm. when, it sold, when, it was at, when both of them were at the, its most powerful. And so it was a great time to... You know, my timing was right. Everything just, my creative work came together at the right time. And the whole thing just went way, way up. I think we sold, God, 
13 million records yeah. in, I don't know, two and a half, three years, something like that. And had a lot of singles and um, dominated airplay. And it was really the, 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 the thing for me that was cool was that when the FM radio put the record on, they played the whole side. Yes, they for the first three months, man, they never took it off, and and that was always part of the thing. Was I wanted those segues to just bring people in, and you know, when I listen to music, that's what I want. I want to go on Bozo goes to the circus <laughs> with John Coltrane, you <laughs> know, or, or Miles or whoever it is I'm listening to. Where, right. where when I got my eyes closed and I'm in space and I'm listening and I'm feeling and I'm enjoying myself, you know, that's the way I want it to be. It's like nice long and good so essentially fly like an eagle and i guess book of dreams that's that group of songs that you're talking about that yeah. were all sort of made at the same same yeah, exact time same, same time, equipment yeah. same techniques maybe yeah, of yeah. recording uh -huh. yeah because i was really asking sonically you know um you know it's funny we t it took 17 hours to mix fly like an eagle and we did a quad mix too just went in the studio a separate quad mix yeah you were really big on that weren't you oh yeah I don't have quad. I mean, I have the quad versions of some of these records, but I don't have the quad needles and equ yeah equipment to. It never sounded any good, you know. But no, but it was cool. <laughs> if you're separation. in a Westwood room, like these are Westwood speakers here, mm -hmm. and uh, you know, this is maybe this is a Westwood room. It looks like one, and uh, you know, we, we could get the tape here and play it, and it'd be good. But you know, like Stockhausen, man. Stockhausen built a, a circle, two geodesic domes, put them together for a circle. Mm -hmm. Put the floor in the middle, brought the stairs up. This is at the Japanese World's Fair. Yeah. Stairs up, and you go up in the middle, and you walk through it, and the speakers, the sound's going underneath you and going like this all around you in circles. So a 360. You know, like 360 for real, underneath you and above you. All of that kind of stuff just makes the horizon better and bigger and more delicious. I don't know if I want my music sneaking up from me um, from behind. You know? <laughs> <laughs> All right, y'all. You know what season it is. Tis the season for spring breaking and planning our summer travel. And if you're like me, you're already in your Airbnb app trying to find which spot is right for you. Now, listen, while I'm looking to spend all this money, what I'm not doing is thinking about making money with Airbnb. See, you got to change your mind state. Make the money while you're spending the money. How, you say, Laia, do I make the money? Well, you host at your house. And I know what you're thinking. I mean, my whole house? Uh, well, no, you don't have to do your whole house. I mean, you could do a room or, you know, do the whole house. So make some money while you're spending some money this summer. I'm trying to tell you, your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Okay. I love Walker Hayes. He's amazing. He's so fun. Such a great entertainer. And that's why I'm so excited that JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for the everyday guy. The Walker Hayes for JCPenney collection is an upbeat playlist of instant classics with laid-back appeal 
and down-home vibes. As a dad of seven kids, he knows exactly what fathers want and need when it comes to their style. This collection reflects his casually cool styles with outdoor-inspired details and versatile colors. Perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man, along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th. Just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count. We're, we're currently here at Electric Lady Studios in New York, uh, home of Jimi Hendrix. Uh-uh. I never recorded here. Wow. Uh-uh. Ever been here at all? Or? Um, no, I think this is my first time here. Wow. Uh, we brought him here. You did. Uh, okay. Thank you very much for inviting me. And, and you did uh, that. Well, wait. Well, I mean, I got- just guitars and stuff. You know, you clearly like them. So, you know. <laughs> Steve, Steve wanted to make sure you were somewhere special. Like, seriously, he was like, we can't, we have to have Steve Miller in Electric Lady. Yeah, so. it's only right. Okay, so. I would be remiss, and I know you're tired of telling uh, about your account of it. Oh. I want to ask about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Oh. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the year later, do you feel better about it? or What's the you- controversy? I'm sorry. Brief me. Well, I mean, it was just, uh, <laughs> are you is, are you not to, in it? And no, he's in not, it. He's in it. Okay. He's in it. Yes, okay. he's been inducted. I watched him get inducted. Okay. Yes. You were there with us that night. Yeah, I'm I'm sit, I was I'm sitting sorry. next to David Byrne, dude. Okay, yeah, amazing. I, I totally forgot. So okay. what's the what's the beef? So uh, you read Sticky Fingers, right? Yes. Yeah, that's that's the problem with the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. So um, I don't get that reference. I don't, we don't, I don't know. So um, half the staff is the one. Well, what what did what bothered me about the rock and roll hall of fame was mm-hmm. and and i said all of this in the billboard article the the next day was uh there was no gathering there was no party there was no dinner there was no anything from the rock and roll hall of fame at all i wasn't introduced to any of the inductees wow. not introduced to one I was met at, I was told that no, I couldn't uh, make any suggestions about who I wanted to induct me. What? I was told that if I wanted extra tickets for my band, remember they were $10,000 a piece at at my table, $10,000 a ticket. I was sent a contract that was worse than any record contract I'd ever seen in my life that was so purposely written in a way that was impossible to understand that I would, I just laughed at it. <laughs> and, uh, I was asked to start, you know, giving over things, d- delivering guitars, giving special stuff. And the contractually, there was like a three month argument before I ever got there. So when I got there, some woman came up to me and goes, hi, my name's Shirley and I'm your minder. I'm from oh. like, you know, uh, entertainment services or something, you know, with a clipboard and took me to a little cement room with two metal chairs, took Janice and I there and said, we need you to wait here for an hour and then we're going to call you and we're going to come down and do this thing. Right. So, uh, <laughs> you know, I wasn't going to do that. <laughs> so I went, went out of the hall, ran into a few people and stuff like that. And then there was some little sort of cocktail party that was open to anybody and everybody kind of Mm -hmm. hustler party and got out of that next day we go to do the sound check we're given like about 12 minutes my house mixer can't mix my monitor man's not allowed to use the monitor mixer we got a guy who's doing the monitor mix on an ipad 
200 feet away. Uh, hurry up. You got 12 minutes. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go get out of here. So we do that. And uh, time goes by. And then all of a sudden it's time for the show to start. And somebody just takes me out and they, I'm sat at a table where I don't know anyone at the table. <laughs> so all and, in all, and, a very satisfying and, experience. And my band, my band is 300 oh feet God. over that way somewhere. I hadn't seen them. <laughs> right. And I'm, I'm sitting there. Steve, are you okay? And, yeah. Okay. And, and I'm, I'm sitting there thinking like, let's see. I would have had a party. I would have introduced everybody. And then I would have had like, you know, some little kids from the let's, you know, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame music school come up and play, you know, one of Steve's songs and one of, you know, their whoever, you know, NWA songs, whatever, and do this. And and then I'd explain about our music education program and how we're re really glad to have these new inductees together. And we really wanted your help on these programs and wanted to, you know, rope you into the Hall of Fame, beacon of light for music education. This was like the coldest grab for a profit to get money for a TV show. And I'm telling you, man, when I walked off the stage in the back and these little smarmy kids were going like, hey, so you were up for 23 years and they didn't put you in. How does that make you feel? You know, I kind of went, fuck you. You know, I'll, you know, this, so that. That explains it. Okay. And I walked out the door, man, and... The door closed, and I had a little statuette in my hand, and my lovely wife with me, and Jimmy Vaughn and, and Rob and his wife, and we said, well, let's Uber a car and go home. Dang, Uber wow. a car? <laughs> wow. No yeah. car to take you home? I feel bad for Janice, because I know there was a lot of motherfuckers that night, <laughs> right? Was it a lot in that room? A lot of... You know, it, yeah. that's what... <laughs> so, the way I looked at it was like, I could really help this place. I could have really done a lot of good for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And they didn't even ask. They didn't even they weren't even interested. And I know that I'm in here because they want to make a television show. There are two good things that happened. One was uh uh The night ended? No. <laughs> no I, I got to meet uh Ice Cube and Dr. Dre. Oh, no. oh that's oh, a good man. thing. That's good. That's a good so, that's a good thing. I'm posing a in the middle of them, right? In this picture going, this is a cool picture. And I don't really care about pictures and stuff, but I've got, this is going to be a great picture. And I'm really proud to be here. And so I go, so Dre, that was a fly like an eagle. You sampled on killer killer, right? Yeah. I said, that's okay. <laughs> okay. No, it was like classic, man. Thank you. Because <laughs> we know uh, yeah. you don't play that. Okay, my last question, and that's it. I promise. Uh, your three, just your three, because I know you're passionate about music. Your three all-time favorite albums. Could you? And I don't mean like Desert Disc or whatever. Just uh, kind of blue. Okay. Um, Miles Davis, kind of blue. Yeah. Uh, um. Well, it, I'm not sure the name of the album. It's it's. Uh, I think it's Bob Crosby and the Bobcats with the uh, big noise from Monetka and Honky Tonk Train, and. Um, Uh, Researching, probably you know a Jimmy Reed album. 
you know, the, okay. the, those are, you know, my, those are, those, that's the music that just really rocked my soul. Well, I gotta say, I, I got more than what I, I yeah. bargained for because I thought I, it was just going to be the history of the Steve Miller band, but we got we got way more than that music. Oh, I got more than I bargained for too, man. I'm saying that, yeah, like for me, my favorite type of interviews are either engineers or like artists that were there for historic, like these historical beatings or you know historical moments that you never even think about but yeah this was such a major major education wait and before i sign off is any other historical things happen to you that i don't know about the like, dude has jammed with literally every person i know i've ever heard of and he invented the monitor i was just like you know well, next time we'll talk about uh otis redding at monterey oh! Oh! We can go for 10 more minutes. We can go for 10 more minutes. <laughs> it's Otis Redding, man. If you're having any pains in your derriere, you should know that Jimmy Jam was forced to do this for six hours and yeah. didn't even know it. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. His, his butt was numb. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I will sign off now. Okay. But as an encore, yes, thank you for tuning in to Questlove Supreme. <laughs> Signing off. And now for our encore, the Otis Redding story by Steve Miller. So, uh, Monterey Pop Festival's on, right? And there's a lot of kind of like Johnny Rivers and Laura Nero and mm -hmm. uh, uh, kind of you know Soft. what are what's going on right? And uh, all of a sudden I'm backstage and I just hear this groove and I just you know snap just like that and said I gotta go gotta go gotta go and I went running to the stage. And got up on the stage, and uh, it's Booker T and the MGs. Mm. And they're just warming it up. And then I think it was the bar case or the horn section. Mm -hmm. And the bar case had this, this trumpet player, had this little pocket trumpet. And he's like, they're beginning to do the steps, and they're just playing these instrumentals, and they're walking back, and this little, this little trumpet player is just this mean little guy, and he's going, tighten it up. <laughs> you know, and I'm, I'm sitting there watching this just going this is going to be the greatest thing in the world and uh, Otis came out on the stage and he grabbed the mic and he just hit the first note and it was like this giant punch to the solar plexus the whole audience just went oh and this mood just came over the whole place and he just killed it just didn't stop for a second man the whole the whole show was just it was the most beautiful show i ever saw in my life and the last thing i remember about it was like i was standing outside away from it and i was watching people in the parking lot leave and everybody was happy everybody man as far as you could see there was just this warmth and i thought he was like the greatest that I thought that was one of the greatest live performances I had ever seen. And I've seen Ray Charles and I've seen James Brown with the flames and I've seen a lot, a lot of great shows. Right. And that was like probably the, the most powerful performance I think I ever saw an artist do. That was there just have one more night. <laughs> we have a boss, Bill, unpaid Bill, Sugar Steve, it's like, yeah. And Fontigolo. Uh, thank you, Steve Miller. Appreciate it. Yeah. Man. Yeah.
This is yes. another extravaganza episode of Quest Love Supreme on well, Pridor. Quest Love, it's a it's a great honor to be here, and I really um, appreciate who you are and what you do, and and uh, your intellectual curiosity, and. Um, I want to play some music with you. I think we should go to the studio and we should like start with something and just take it somewhere. You know, yeah, that just, would, just don't let them bring in the space intro. Don't, don't let them use space intro. Don't let them use space intro. I'm bringing my Echoplex and my... <laughs> from, from your mouth to Steve Miller's because, ears. Yes. Because I, I, if we'd grown up together, we would be doing this together. I know we would have. Yeah, thank there you. There you have it. That's awesome. All right. So, Steve, we got our... New yeah, point. next Thank album. You. Sounds good. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, Timothy Ann, is that you in the state? Of course that's you. Of course. Even the Smithsonian comes to visit. All right, thank you very much, Steve Bill. I appreciate it. Yeah, my well, pleasure. Until then, the next go-round, this was Quest Love Supreme. Thanks, Janice. Thank you. Okay, peace, love, and happiness. Quest Love Supreme is a production of iHeartRadio. This classic episode was produced by the team at Pandora. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, guys. Back at the playground again, huh? Yep. You know what this playground could use? A wine country. Heck, Yeah. And some waves, so we could go surfing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> ah, love that. A redwood forest would be cool. I'm in. Ah, ski slopes. Let's do it. Um, can a girl go shopping? Yeah, baby. Wait. Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com.